Good morning, everyone. Don Lemon here alongside Poppy Harlow and Caitlin Collins. It is Wednesday morning. We're excited morning. to be here. Thank you for starting your day with us. We have a lot of big news. This is a big day, really, for the economy and President Biden's political faith as the Fed make a major decision just days away from the midterms. Plus, chilling new details about that attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, including what the suspect told him as he stood over his bedside. We will take you live this morning to San Francisco with those new details. And it's being called a real-life house of cards inside the Kremlin. Why Russian mercenaries are fighting for power as Putin's military in Ukraine is faltering. We're going to begin with CNN polls that just come in. It released moments ago that show Republicans are in a strong position ahead of the next of next week's midterm elections with the economy on the forefront of everyone's minds. Straight now to CNN's political director, Mr. David Chalian. Good morning, David. So what's the latest? Good morning, Don. Yeah, this is uh, the home stretch here assessment of the electorate heading in to those midterm elections. Take a look at this generic congressional ballot in our brand new poll conducted by SSRS. You see the Republican advantage here among likely voters. Fifty-one uh, percent say they're going to vote for the Republican. Forty-seven percent the Democrat. This four percentage point spread uh, bodes well uh, for Republicans to pick up seats in Congress. And remember. They're only five away from the majority in the House. Look at this over time. Republicans were at 47 percent. Dems were at 50 uh, just at the uh, beginning of last month. Now, Republicans have grown. Democrats have lost some status here. And break it down by party. Obviously, Republicans overwhelming. 96 percent of them are voting for the Republican candidate. 98 percent of Democrats voting for the Democrat. But those crucial independents in the middle, you see advantage Republican there, 48 percent to 45 percent. We also took a look at gender and the divide there. Female voters, advantage Democrat, 51 percent to 45 percent, a six point advantage among female likely voters for Democrats. But that gets wiped out by this overwhelming advantage among male voters, male likely voters that Republicans have a 17 percentage point edge, 58 percent to 41 percent. And when you look at the voters by race, white voters, 62 percent to 36 percent going Republican, black likely voters, 85 percent to 8 percent Democrat over Republican and Latino voters, 65 percent Democrat, 33% Republican. I'll just note, this is a 32 percentage point advantage for Democrats. Four years ago in 2018, the exit poll showed Democrats had a 40 point advantage. So that is getting somewhat diminished there as yeah. well, if this is how it turns out That's next week. Momentum is everything going in when you're this close to the election. That's exactly right, especially for that critical uh, group of voters. David, good morning. Thank you for helping us go through all of this. I, it was a few weeks ago when President Biden essentially said, I think it's going to flip again in our direction. You remember that? He's like, we got a few weeks to go. Well, now we got like five days to go. Talk to us about the key issues. Like what is at the top of everyone's mind and what is not? Yeah, that may have been wishful thinking yeah. on the part of the president. We have days to go here and we'll see. But these are the this is an economy election, guys. Look at this. Uh, among likely voters, what is the most important issue? 51 percent say the economy and inflation. Nothing else comes close. In fact, the only other thing in double digits is abortion at 15 percent. But that's well mm. below uh, the economy. And when you look at it by parties, these labels are flipped. So Democrats are over here. You see, it's much more spread out, right? Abortion actually edges ahead slightly of economy inflation for Democratic voters. Among Republican voters, 71% of Republican voters say the economy and inflation is issue number one. And we see that that is driving the election. We talked about 
the critical independent voters, that group in the middle yeah. both parties are going for. And you see here, it's overwhelmingly an economy inflation election. 53% of independent likely voters say that is the most important issue. 3% crime. That's it? That's a big issue for Republicans. They are running on that, David. They are running in it. There are tons of money is being spent. There is no doubt it is central to the conversation in terms of what people are seeing on their airwaves. But it just doesn't rate when we ask huh. the most important issue, right? It's not that it's not an important issue, but when we're asking folks to rank them, it doesn't even come close to the economy. But even, even abortion <clears throat> is so much lower than the economy and inflation, and that has been a driving message for a lot of Democrats. And you know, we interviewed Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin yesterday. She's a very vulnerable Democrat. She has been telling Democrats in Washington, our closing yeah. message cannot be on abortion. Uh, David, another question I think we've seen in questions on early voting is the enthusiasm. Who, who is more excited to vote, Republicans or Democrats here? Caitlin, look at this. First of all, overall, it's an enthusiastic electorate, not the most we've seen, but 27% of likely voters mm. say they are extremely enthusiastic. 20% say very enthusiastic. Compare that over time. So right now, 27% say extremely enthusiastic, not as engaged as four years ago, 2018, when the Democrats overtook Congress. But look, well ahead of 2014, a good Republican year, well ahead of October 2020, uh, when only 20% said extremely enthusiastic uh, before Republicans won 63 seats that year. And if you look here, you see the clear Republican advantage. 38% of extremely enthusiastic voters are voting for the Republican. 24% of the extremely enthusiastic voters are planning to vote for the Democrat. That spread of 14 points, that mirrors the spread and advantage Republicans had back in 2010. Just because, uh, going back to the ranking of the issues, doesn't mean that their people aren't going to vote on their individual issues. Some people, crime may be more important to them, and you're right. It's what people are seeing on the airwaves, and that may affect the way that they vote when they go into their polling place. But I, ju I just wonder... With the, you know, where the president's approval rating is hovering right mm. now, what effect is that having on the polling? Yeah, Don, the Biden factor, the reality is he's just upside down. He's just more unpopular than he's popular. Among likely voters in this poll, Joe Biden's approval rating is now at 42%. His disapproval rating is 58%. Wow. Just to put that in context for you, and now I'll switch back to registered voters to compare through history. So among registered voters in this poll, a wider group, Biden's at 41%. Look where he is keeping company. Trump was right there at 39% in 2018 when he lost big. Um, and you see Reagan in 82 was at 42% when he lost seats. Even Clinton in 46% in 1994 lost more than 50 seats for his party. So Biden is not in good territory in terms of a president's impact on what his party does in that first midterm election. So you're saying there's still a chance. <laughs> Not much. No, That's no. why you've seen the oh, Biden is... I Always a chance until we count the votes. Yeah, I'm right. just messing with you, David. Go ahead, Caitlin, sorry. And that's a big factor in where Biden has been these last few days. He yeah. is not going to the places that you're seeing former President Obama go to. No. It's because of that approval rating. And a lot of people are not, you know, they don't want to be seen with the president, quite frankly, and they don't want to even answer the question about whether they should be, um, running with him or right, having having him on the campaign trail or if they'll support him come 2020. Yeah, we will be talking to Josh Shapiro today, who is the Democratic candidate for governor in Pennsylvania. He is going to be appearing with President Biden. We'll see what you know what he has to say yeah, about that. Yeah. Thank you very much. David Chalian, appreciate it. He's got his work cut out for him in the next couple of days. <laughs> yeah. So um, not much sleep for yeah. David. All right. So we're less than a week away, so make sure you join CNN. Special election night coverage is starting next Tuesday, 4 p.m. Eastern, of course, right here on CNN.
All right, so let's connect the dots this morning, okay? The political fate of Democrats, as David clearly laid out, is tied to the economy. And the Federal Reserve meets today, and it sounds wonky, but this matters to each and every one of you a lot on the economy. They will announce what is expected to be another interest rate hike. It's six this year, potentially 75 basis points, which is big. It's really big. MJ Lee is at the White House. Okay, people look at this. I think their eyes glaze over, understandably so. Explain why what the Fed does today matters so much. And also, MJ, why you've got some really key Democrats writing a letter to Fed Chair Jerome Powell saying, look, how much more pain is this going to inflict? How many more millions of job losses? Yeah, look, Poppy, uh, we are about to see actually two things happen in Washington today that really show in such a vivid way uh, this very complicated problem for the president and the biggest problem for him, as David just showed, and that is, of course, inflation. Uh, we have, on the one hand, the Federal Reserve uh, expected to make another historic rate hike, just shows uh, in such a blaring way that this is such a big problem still for the economy. Uh, and then, uh, literally, at around the same time here at the White House, the president is going to be holding this event, making a speech uh, on the issue of workforce training. Now, what does that have to do with inflation? Well, officials would argue that when you're training workers so that they can get into these specialized areas, uh, you are in part uh, creating a long-term solution to deal with the labor shortage, which is one of the many problems driving inflation. So we've almost got this White House counter-programming event to what we're going to see at the Fed. Uh, again, just another reminder that this problem has been so intractable for this president. Yeah, it certainly has. And I think Caitlin put it so well that even in these final weeks, even when the polling numbers, MJ, have been showing the economy is primary for folks, a lot of Democrats have kept running on, they've, you know, kept the same playbook. Maybe they haven't shifted. Maybe to their demise. I mean, 13% abortion is the focus for people, 53% economy. What do you think this all means in the final push? But it is the second most important uh, issue on it that is. list. No, it's it a good point. Out, yeah. It's the second most important issue. It's just a big gap. I mean, really, just think about it this way, guys. We are six days out from Election Day, and the president is off the trail for one of those days so that he can do this sort of feel-good, uh, look at one of the good things we're doing for the economy uh, events. Uh, you know, one thing I will say is that voters really do uh, hold the president of the United States responsible for the state of the economy. Uh, but right now, at this moment, uh, the central figure in doing the, sort of the most aggressive action when it comes to inflation it's not President Biden. It can't uh, come from Congress. It has to come from the Federal Reserve. Uh, so again, I think it is just one more reminder today, not that the president needs it. He knows this very well, uh, that this remains such a complicated problem for him and that in so many ways his hands are tied because he's so limited in any sort of short-term solutions that he can offer as much as he wants to try. MJ, don't they understand you're on television at this hour with the lawnmower? <laughs> Caitlin knows all about that. Caitlin knows. Caitlin knows all Always that. do the lawn work early in the morning. <laughs> if you are on that morning shift, you know there's going to be sprinklers going off, lawnmowers behind you. But she oh, handled sorry it like about that. Like uh, not your problem. Not, that's not your fault, I should say. <laughs> M MJ, thank you. And guys, she's right about the president, but Democrats control the House, the Senate, the White House, and even the San Francisco Fed said, look, this stimulus that was pushed into the economy contributed to inflation. So yeah, they bear some of it. It's We'll see the results of it when voters make their decisions next Tuesday. Yep. All right, so this is some first reporting that was on CNN first. As soon as today, you're going to see House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's family being able to hear the audio of her husband, Paul Pelosi's 911 call to police 
actually get to see the body camera footage of the officers who responded to their home in San Francisco last Friday when that attacker was inside. Authorities tell CNN that the video does show this violent attack. What, I, what is very clear to me from viewing that body-worn camera is he tried to kill Mr. Pelosi. That is putting it basically as bluntly as it gets. CNN's Veronica Miracle, she's live in San Francisco. Veronica, what are we expecting the Pelosi family to really get their hands on today to learn more about just how this attack unfolded? Well, good morning, Caitlin. We understand they're going to be taking a look at that 911 call and the body camera video. And we understand from the motion to detain that the attack was caught on body camera video. But beyond that, the district attorney has not elaborated what else they should see on there. Uh, I was in court yesterday when David DePap was arraigned on multiple felony charges. He entered not guilty pleas for all of those. And when he came inside, he had a sling on his right arm. And I later learned from the public defender it's because his shoulder was dislocated during his arrest. New chilling details from the 911 call House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband made when an assailant broke into their San Francisco home. According to a motion to detain filed Tuesday, just after 2 a.m., the defendant, David DePap, allegedly startled Pelosi awake, holding a large hammer in his right hand and several white plastic zip ties in his left. DePap allegedly asked, are you Paul Pelosi, then repeated, where's Nancy, where's Nancy? According to the motion, Pelosi, still groggy, responded, she's not here. DePap then responded, okay, I'm going to tie you up. According to the document, at 2.23 a.m., Pelosi placed the 911 call after allowing the assailant to allow him to go to the bathroom where his phone was charging. He spoke to the dispatcher for three minutes and stated words to the effect of, there is a male in the home and that the mail is going to wait for Pelosi's wife. Pelosi further conveyed that he does not know who the mail is. The mail said his name is David. The dispatcher trying to really figure out and decode what was being said on that call. And, um, and, and so she, she attempted to keep him on the phone uh, in order to do that. I say again, I think you know, her being able to figure that out, along with Mr. Pelosi's keeping his wits about him, uh, he was heroic, and the dispatcher figuring out that there was something more was also heroic. And I think that though that action saved his life. DePap allegedly told officers and medics on the scene that he did not want to hurt Pelosi, but that he escalated things, claiming he was sick of the level of lies coming out of Washington, D.C. According to the motion, he said, this was a suicide mission. I'm not going to stand here and do nothing, even if it costs me my life. DePap appeared in court Tuesday and pleaded not guilty to a slew of state charges. Authorities say DePap spoke at length with law enforcement before retaining an attorney. His attorney acknowledges the speculation that he was vulnerable to misinformation. That's certainly something that we're going to look into, that we're going to delve into as his defense team. According to a source briefed on the attack, U.S. Capitol Police first learned of the break-in about 10 minutes after the incident, when an officer noticed police lights and sirens on a live camera feed at the Capitol Police Command Center in Washington, D.C. Security for lawmakers now under strict scrutiny. I lived through the January 6th insurrection. I'd like to say that it has been improved since then and people learned our lesson, but unfortunately, uh, that extremism is deepening, it's broadening in America uh, because we have a, a mainstream political party that is refusing to push back on it. 
And two sources have told CNN that the San Francisco Police Department had regularly stopped posting a patrol car sometime last year. Caitlin? Quick work by that dispatcher there. Veronica Miracle, thank you. And now to a quick fact check this morning. GOP Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake says that she wasn't mocking the attack on Paul Pelosi during a campaign event this week. Watch this. I never made light on the attack. I was talking about our children and why they don't have better security at school. And I said that our politicians have security and that our athletes have security and we need to have security for our children. Go back and look at the tape and don't do any creative editing like the fake media tends to do. And you'll see what I was saying. Go back and look at the video. A lot of creative editing was done, okay? And I think you all know it if you were there. They clipped that that clip and made it look bad. And listen, nobody's, I didn't attack anybody. I want to provide security for our children at schools. Okay, so she said go back and look at the tape. So she claims the video was edited. So let's show you exactly what she said. This is the full clip, the context around it, and the crowd's reaction. Here it is. All right. If elected, what are your plans for increasing school safety? Do you plan to have it in your budget to increase school safety, and how so? I believe with the last budget, Wendy, not if I'm right, was about $50 million put into increasing school safety with school, uh, uh, school resource officers, armed officers, to make sure we're protecting our kids. It is not impossible to protect our kids at school. They act like it is. Nancy Pelosi, well, she's got protection when she's in D.C. Apparently her house doesn't have a lot of protection. But if our lawmakers have protection, if our lawmakers can have protection, if our uh, politicians can have protection, if our athletes, and certainly the most important people in our lives, our children should have protection. So uh, there's the evidence. There was no editing uh, of this tape. She does make light of the attack. And when the moderator and the crowd laughed, clearly reacting to her remark, she never pushed back, unlike a former politician from her state in the past. I can't trust Obama. I, I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a... Um, he's an Arab. He is not. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a he's a he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on on fundamental issues. And that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. And that one wasn't edited either. Didn't need to be. And very simply here, facts or facts. And the tape shows what it shows. More civility, right? As yeah. President Obama called for more just a few days ago. More responsibility, more civility, and honesty. All right, this morning, South Korea says the North has fired at least 23 different missiles into waters off the east and west coast of the peninsula. And for the first time, one of them landed close to South Korean waters. Our Will Ripley joins us live from Seoul. Will, 23. What does this mean? We've never seen a day like this in the history of modern North Korea. 23 missiles, uh, you know, in a single day, 29 launch events, missile launch events 
this year, uh, unprecedented, more than any other year uh, that in North Korean history, any of the three North Korean leaders. Uh, and in that addition to 100 artillery shells, a barrage of artillery fired into those waters off the peninsula as well. There were even air raid sirens at a South Korean island off the coast, Poppy. Uh, this is North, something that North Korea has been signaling for the last couple of days. And frankly, they're saying that even stronger, more powerful follow-up measures, as they call it, could be coming soon because they're angry about U.S.-South Korean military drills that are happening right now. So the big question, will there be a nuclear test on the horizon, this seventh underground nuclear test that everybody's been talking about? I mean, that is the key question, Will. But I think, as you know well, another key question is the response. The, the fact that South Korea responded in the way that it did with its own missile launches, just what that tells you about how escalated this is. Yeah, well, look, it used to be pretty rare that South Korea would respond militarily because the previous president, President Moon, was all about making peace. This new president, President Yoon, is uh, a very hawkish when it comes to North Korea. And so with the United States, they have been very quickly responding. And so they fired three uh, air-to-surface missiles in a precision bombing exercise. And those missiles actually hit close to North Korean territorial waters. So it's really a tit-for-tat escalation here. And this is all on the heels of the Atomic Energy Agency head warning just last week, about this nuclear test coming up. Uh, the two uh, defense chiefs from the, uh, South Korea and the U.S. will be meeting at the Pentagon tomorrow, and they certainly have a lot to talk about. No, they, no, no question. Will Ripley, thank you for your reporting. Thank you for being there. All right. Well, a real-life house of cards inside of the Kremlin. This morning, we have new CNN original reporting on the turmoil, the backstabbing, and Vladimir Putin's inner circle. And, well, there's no concession yet from Brazil's defeated president. Will Jair Bolsonaro participate in a peaceful transfer of power? That is the question. We will be right back after this message. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, this morning we are getting a pretty rare glimpse inside the tensions in the Kremlin with a U.S. official likening it to the show House of Cards, saying, quote, it's a real-life House of Cards, but in the Kremlin, all stabbing each other in the back. This, as CNN is also learning, that the head of the mercenary group known as Wagner has complained that Russia's top generals are mismanaging their strategy in Ukraine. Joining us now is CNN reporter Katie Bo Lillis. So tell us what we're hearing here, because this is pretty remarkable that the Russian leader is getting this direct of a rebuke from someone telling him that basically they're they're messing up what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, Caitlin, so what U.S. and Western officials believe is going on here is that this longtime ally of Vladimir Putin's, the head of this mercenary group, a man named Prigozhin, is trying to use the kind of chaos and pretty clear mismanagement of Putin's war in Ukraine to try to grow his own influence inside Moscow. So what our sources tell us is that Prigozhin has gone in to speak to Putin directly, specifically criticizing the Ministry of Defense and its handling of the war and encouraging Putin to take a more aggressive approach to the conflict. So as one analyst described it to us, this is Prigozhin trying to raise his own stature by embarrassing the Minister of Defense, who happens to be another longtime Putin ally, a man named Sergei Shoigu. So as, again, as one of our sources described it, this is really a, a, a real-life house of cards happening inside the Kremlin. And what does it mean for uh, Shoigu, someone who, this, these Russian defense leaders who are in charge, basically akin, akin to Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin, what does it mean for how secure their jobs are? 
I, that's the big million-dollar question, Caitlin. What's really interesting, I think, to intelligence officials right now is not just that there's this jockeying happening in between Prigozhin and other Russian officials, government officials, who are trying to kind of either deflect blame or capitalize on the disaster that's unfolding in Ukraine. It's how is Putin himself responding to these criticisms, particularly of longtime insiders like Shoigu, people whose position had previously been considered relatively safe in the regime. So they're hoping it's going to provide them a little bit of a window into uh, not just how the power structures of the Kremlin might shake out as a result of this war, but also is Putin himself feeling under pressure to try to escalate the war, take more drastic measures in Ukraine to try to regain some momentum? And of course, we know that's raised questions among U.S. officials about whether or not, because his military is faltering, he'd resort to the use of nuclear weapons. Yeah. Katie Vo, really important reporting. Thank you. Yeah, all this so. what's happening may be palace intrigue to some folks, but what's happening because of the Russian war brings this to heighten to even um, what this means for everyone. Yeah. So let's talk more about what's happening in other places because it affects what's happening here. So what's happening in Russia and also what's happening in Brazil. So he lost the election, but still not clear whether Brazil's president plans to leave office. Jair Bolsonaro still hasn't conceded or congratulated the winner. And the supporters are causing chaos in the streets, as you see there on your screens right now. So joining us now, the co-hosts uh, of Newsroom, Max Foster and Bianca Nobilo, and there they join us now. Uh, thank you, good morning to you. So what's going on? Why hasn't he conceded? What exactly is he saying? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, he hasn't conceded it, he hasn't contested it. We do know that during the election campaign, he was um, casting doubt on the voting system there in Brazil. And he is also saying that his, vote, his supporters have this right to go out and protest. And when we speak to those supporters or people on the ground do, mm. they are um, contesting this. So there are echoes, I think, of what happened in America after the, you know, after the last election. They are doubting the election system on the ground. And he's not exactly dispelling that fear, is he? No, he isn't. I think it's being interpreted as tacit approval of what the protesters are doing. Mm -hmm. And as what Max was saying, some of the language is so close to what we heard from former President Donald Trump. For example, but, um, his son, Bolsonaro's son, said they're expecting the greatest election fraud in their history. And that was a few days ago. So you yeah. can see the parallels in the rhetoric there. And of course, as we often see with strongman leaders, um, and those that have qualities of them. There is this us and them populist narrative which Bolsonaro has been perpetuating through all of this. Well, and that's the reason the thing, this matters... On, I just want to ask, but that's the thing, well, the violence. But the, the violence here, that's the issue because we saw what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. When you look at the violence in the streets, you're right. It is tacit um, and it, it does mimic what happened here in the United States. It is important for officials, whether it's here in the United States or wherever, to concede elections. Well, and that's, that's why it, it matters that he's, as Max noted, you know, he's not conceding, he's not contesting it. Right. But that silence matters because is what you just saw there, that video. Those are Bolsonaro's own supporters protesting by blocking the roads, and it's causing so many issues. And the other element of that, Caitlin, is the fact that it is tradition in um, Brazilian politics, as it is in most democracies, for the person who's unsuccessful in the election to call the winner and officially concede. Mm. So that is actually part of the peaceful transfer of power, and that notably has not happened. And he has called to his protesters not to be violent. He's saying that's something of the left. Uh, but as you're saying, you know, yeah. those scenes are playing out. Mm. You know... Just to bring this home, I mean, they call him the Trump, many call him the Trump of the tropics, right, for the reason that you noted, uh, Bianca. But 
Just take it home to the people. The Brazilian people are suffering. They have been suffering for so many years under Bolsonaro's, uh, you know, power. And the inflation is out of control. There is such extensive poverty. So, so this matters deeply for Brazilians, what happens. And if Lula coming back into power can actually turn things around as he's promised. Well, the challenge for him is there's this, you know, completely disunited country and two right. very clear sides to the debate and it's left and it's right. And Lula's somehow got to bring, unite people. And that's going to be a huge challenge. Yeah. I think when, when you have an election result where the difference between the two main parties is only 1.8% and they are on completely opposite ends of the political spectrum, it's right. obviously going to deepen and stir division. Thank you Good both. Point. I appreciate it, Max and Bianca. It, it's interesting. I think one of the, these leaders take cues from each other, right? Obviously, a lot of them are taking cues from what happened here in the United States and President Trump. Yeah, many transitions happening around the world. We're having watching what's happening in Israel as well very closely. Yeah. Uh, there is a manhunt in Newark, New Jersey that we need to get to now for a suspect who shot two police officers who were trying to arrest him. Also, what you need to know before having that second drink to help you unwind, maybe in the evening after work, we've got new details. Oh, boy. Wow. Not bad for us. <laughs> Did you say that doesn't apply to us? Welcome back to CNN This Morning. We're so glad you're with us this morning. It is the bottom of the hour. Time for more news. Let's get to the domestic beat. Our colleague Bryn Gingras is here. Good morning, Bryn. Yeah, hey guys, good morning. A suspect remains at large after two New Jersey police officers were shot attempting to make an arrest. This happened in Newark last night. Authorities searched an apartment building where they thought Kendall Howard was hiding, but police couldn't find him. One of the officers was shot in the leg. The other was shot in the shoulder, the bullet grazing his neck. Both are in stable condition. In Kentucky, at least one school district outside Lexington is canceling classes for a week, writing on Facebook this. The Powell County schools will be closed due to illness through the evening of November 8th. We'll resume school after Election Day, the morning of November 9th. And it could be a billion-dollar night, so get your tickets. The Powerball jackpot has climbed to $1.2 billion after no one matched the winning numbers in Monday night's drawing. And guys, I would ask you... Are you going to quit your jobs if no. you win? But that's yes. not an option. We just started yesterday. <laughs> well, if, you, if I don't show up on Thursday, you'll know why. It's because I left at 9.01 a.m. this morning. And you mean, no, you no, mean no. we left? You would I miss would us. You would miss us, Caitlin. Yeah. I would come, come by as a guest. Friendship. I'd come by as Dr. Tara. <laughs> <laughs> I'd stop in and say hi. <laughs> Thank you, friend. Thank Thanks, you, friend. I appreciate that. Okay, a glass of wine or a beer after work is a pretty common way for people to unwind. A new study just published, though, might make you think twice about pouring yourself that second drink. Joining us now, seeing a medical correspondent, Dr. Tara. Narula, you Good have morning. said... Wait, 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 wait. What? 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 Wait, what? <laughs> this is not what you want to hear, right? Do you know how stressful people's lives are now? Yeah. Yes. Well, for thousands, What's the deal? there are thousands of centuries we've been consuming what the Greeks called the nectar of the gods, but that nectar may have problems when drunk in excess. So what we know is that excessive alcohol use is associated with increased morbidity and mortality. In fact, it is a leading preventable cause of premature death, and death rates for alcohol-attributable causes have been 
going up for the past decade. So researchers here looked at alcohol consumption from 2015 to 2019 in U.S. adults, and they found that one in eight deaths in those 20 to 64 were attributable to alcohol, excessive alcohol, okay? One in five deaths in those 20 to 49 were also attributable to excessive alcohol consumption. And it was higher in men than women. It varied across states, so highest uh, in New Mexico, lowest in Mississippi. In general, the Southeast had lower rates and the West, Upper Midwest, New England, higher rates. Um, And when we're talking about what are these causes, so we're talking about poisonings, motor vehicle accidents. By poisoning, we mean substance use with with alcohol, motor vehicle accidents, um, and alcohol-related liver disease. Where is it higher? Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What's it? Where is it higher again? So it's higher in the West, the Upper Midwest, and New England. The Southeast had lower rates. So what you're talking about excessive use, what is, what is that defined by? What's the acceptable use? Right. And so there's a lot of debate about, you know, is it safe to drink at all? And really, there's not a lot of great what we call randomized controlled trials on this topic. But what we generally say is that if you drink moderately, that that's technically for many considered safe. And by moderate, let's define that. So we're talking about at most one glass a day for women, two glasses a day for men. And when we're talking about the types, it's about 12 ounces of beer, five ounces of wine, one and a half ounces of hard liquor. Now, there has been some association with moderate drinking and lower risk of cardiovascular disease. On the other hand, you have to weigh that with the cancer risk. We know that there is increased risk of cancer. Um, so it, it, there <sighs> is some debate that we definitely don't tell people to start drinking if they're not drinking. Um, but if you keep it at that moderate level, maybe okay. It's just interesting because we have just such a natural acceptance of alcohol in our society and our relationship to it. And right. maybe we need to rethink that. We started you know, when marijuana became more acceptable and more mainstream. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the benefits of maybe moderate marijuana use may be better than moderate alcohol use. I think that we need to start thinking about that. We need to be mindful about how we use alcohol. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Thank you. We appreciate it. Straight ahead, Charles Barkley calling Brooklyn Nets star Kyrie Irving, I'm quoting him here, an idiot. And he has some choice words for the NBA as well. Charles Barkley quote is getting some attention. I'm shocked. Uh, If you ever wonder how much your colleagues are getting paid, if you live in New York City like the three of us, you might be able to find out. I'm looking at you two. I'm looking at you two. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Are you three, I should say, doctor? Do you ever wonder? You ever wonder just how much your best friend makes? Never, never. <laughs> I feel like my friends are pretty open what, and talk about what you look at me. So imp- I did not look who you looked at. A new law in New York <laughs> may let you in on that secret. It requires employers to post salary ranges for job listings. So here's how, this, how one New York City council member who sponsored the bill describes it. Listen to this. The fact that you'd apply for a job not knowing what the salary range is, um, is just insane. It's critical to uh, both our economy and, and to gender and racial justice. So some companies have already started updating their listings in New York City and beyond, really. So joining me now, CNN business and politics correspondent Vanessa Yurkevich. Good morning to you. Thank morning. you very much for that. Listen, I guess, really, what is the point? Is it equity? Is it what's the point? Absolutely. Equity, trying to get women on par with men in terms of salaries. This law says that if you are a company with four or more employees and one of them works in New York City, you must post salary ranges for any job that you're looking to fill in New York City. It exempts temp firms. But the key here is that if you 
do not post a salary, companies can be fined $250,000. So this is really trying to get companies to do good due diligence and really explaining to people what this job is worth. It, it, you said it applies to companies with one or with four or more employees. Mm-hmm. I imagine larger companies will be able to do this a lot faster than smaller companies will be able to. Is there a disparity there? Potentially, it's for larger companies, they may be able to auto-generate this really quickly in their ads online. But for a smaller company who maybe has a flyer that they're posting in the neighborhood, they still have to post that salary range. But it may be harder for them to sort of get on board with this. But it's important to note that there is a wide range of salaries that are being offered right now. Big, sort of what they're calling good faith salaries Mm -hmm. that they have to abide by. All right, so many questions for you, but go for it. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Hello. This matters because (sighs) women, minorities, often are paid less than their white male counterparts or their male counterparts. It's just a reality. 83 cents to the dollar. I remember when Mark Benioff at Salesforce went in like five, six years ago. He was alerted at the company. Women are making less. He went and they did a huge audit of the whole company. And he came to the press. I sat down with him. He's like, we were wrong. I was wrong. We are fixing this. Wow. But unless you do that, yeah. you end up with this. This is why it matters. And I love that Caitlin said she talks to her friends about what they make. Women need to do that more and more and more and more. A lot of people right. don't. And this will really try to put men, women, and especially women of color who are known to make yes. less than all of the above, sort of to just put it on paper, to put it on paper for people and hopefully give people a better sense of what they're worth and what their colleagues are worth. Everything you said is true. Okay. <laughs> But not everybody in the same job performs True. the same. So it is nuanced here. Um, you know, should a someone who is just an average player, I'm just using, you know, be paid as much as LeBron James or? Well, that's uh, why they have this range. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's so a huge it is, range. There is nuance. And yes, typically women and people of color get paid less than white men. But not everybody's a great performer. And your sal- I think in some ways your salary needs to reflect That's that. Let's just, let's just put up some of the current job. This yeah. is new before so we So we did a go. little job search yeah. Yeah. in okay. New York City in the last two days because this law took effect here in New York City November 1st. So we saw that a Macy's sale associate, 15 to $34 an hour. American Express, 55 to 105 a year. And then we looked at our own company, Warner Brothers Discovery, who owns CNN. Big salary range, 137000 to 254 If you notice that the minimum salary and then look at the maximum salary, the max is actually double the minimum. So it's a huge range. And maybe some of what you're talking about plays into that skill set, age, et cetera. Yeah. But, you know, it's a, it's a big range. This is what bonuses are for. Big bonuses. Yeah, this doesn't include bonuses. Yeah, not everybody gets right? a bonus. So no, not uh, absol- in that position. A- absolutely not. A lot of. I was talking about the NBA players. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't get a bonus. I was talking about the NBA not players. Not anymore. Um, to be was, continued. This was fascinating, Vanessa. Thank, Thank you, you very, yeah. very much. Okay, so pro sports. Speaking, Speaking of, of NBA yeah. players, pro sports. I've seen quite a few incidents of cheating in recent years. Our Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us to discuss why do we cheat? What, cheating why do people do that? <laughs> I'm not sure if he'll be able to answer that. <laughs> Plus, voters in Arizona are feeling intimidated, they say, by armed patrols that are happening in ballot boxes like the one you see here. We have a report on the right-wing group that is behind what you're seeing. That's up next. Yeah, that should not be allowed to happen. Look at that. No, you, anyone would be intimidated. We got weights and fish! Get the f out of here! Get the f out of here! 
I remember that, Caitlin. Everybody remembers happy. that moment, of course. It was the last time you saw a fishing tournament go viral, <laughs> except for the one that I was in at nine Wait. years old. <laughs> for real? Here, yeah, I have a picture. I'll bring it. Oh, I, my fish was like two pounds. Uh, no weights inside of it. Anyway, a pair of competitive fishermen were disqualified from an Ohio tournament recently when organizers found that they had stuffed their fish with these uh, lead weights. Yeah. The ledge cheating has also rocked the world of chess. This is something I was personally fascinated by. The American grandmaster Hans Niemann filed a defamation lawsuit against the world champion, accusing him of colluding with others to try to ruin his career. And of course, if we cannot forget the Houston Astros, who are currently duking it out with the Phillies in the World Series, as they did last night if you stayed up late. In 2017, they were caught using an elaborate scheme involving video cameras to steal the opposing team's signs. Mm. By the way, they won the World Series that year. I was there because they've been playing the, the Remember the drum thing where they would give away signals with the drum and the crowd? It's all kinds of stuff. I thought we were well, talking about cheating in relationships, but here that, we are. That could Sanjay be a fact in the second, second week, week topic. Hello, Dr. Gupta. How are you this Big morning? Big question and why we have Dr. Sanjay Gupta here with us is why do people cheat? I know you've been looking into this. I think most people would say, you know, just human nature. But what, what is the well, science I mean, behind You know, the, the fundamental answer would no surprise is they want to win and they want all the trappings that come with winning, the money, the status, the attention. That's fundamentally why people do this. We've also developed this, this win-at-all-cost culture. I mean, th this is celebrated when people win. The outcome more so than the process. We know those things. But what I think is interesting is the, the nuance of the cognitive psychology behind this. If you start to look and believe that everyone is cheating, that this is just the normal society, then it becomes much more okay to cheat. Mm. I can't win unless I cheat. That's become part of the culture. The flip side of that, by the way, is also true. If you believe no one is cheating, then you're far less likely to cheat as well. And then finally, I think this is really interesting. The people really may not believe that they are cheating or that they deserve to win. Huh. I deserve it, so I'm going to go ahead and cheat. This plays into so much what's happening in our politics. Right? I think, yeah. think yeah. there's probably some relationships here in, in all these sectors of society. But when it comes to competitive sports, so many of them are won by increments, small little increments. So to win, you have to cheat a little bit to get that small increment. Didn't really cheat, even though it gave you enough to win in a very competitive sport. Doping, so, et cetera. Doping. Yeah. So we're seeing that a lot in, in, again, many sectors of society. Do you, okay, so last night I played the matching game with Luca, who's four, you know, where you flip <laughs> over the cards and match. Did he, did he win? And then he won, <laughs> but he won fair and square. No. And I was like, Luca, you can just go again. And he goes, no, Mom, that's cheating. And I was uh, like, thank you, Luca. So okay, so kids don't, by habit or nature, know to cheat. They learn to cheat. Then we learn to cheat. But who is more likely to cheat and why? Well, so there have been studies on this. And, and, and the conclusion to the study, I'll give you the headline first, is that if the proper and certain behavioral cues are there, just about everyone will cheat. Just about everyone. Gender, age, doesn't matter. There are certain really subtle behavioral cues that make it much more likely to happen. Um, a couple of them, you think no one's watching. That's, mm. that's sort of the big one. And again, no surprise there. Dim or messy environments... So if you think there's a little chaotic environment, you're going to be more likely to cheat in those circumstances. Dim, you mean lighting? Yeah, lighting. Yeah. Oh. Just sim simply, as, uh, as, simply as lighting. Yeah. If Fishing. you believe that there's an abundance of resources, there's enough to go around, it's not really going to matter. If it's, if it's a money thing, for example. If you are tired, you are more likely to not have enough willpower to not cheat. So they're doing all these standardized tests, for example, on Saturday mornings. All these high school kids are super tired at that point more likely to cheat as a result. Yeah. And also people who are in positions of power. 
you know, people who stand like this, you know, positions of power, you find that <laughs> Don's looking. No, I'm, a, I'm not. Look at Paul. No, Paul's good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Body-wise, you figure out position-wise who's more likely to. That's choose. really yeah. interesting. That also positions of power going back to what Don is talking about uh-huh. people in politics. Mm-hmm. That- Sanjay, thanks for joining yes. us no this morning. No use of the brain. I'm, I'm sad I know. I didn't to say. get to use my brain. Nobody was, cheats when they're going quiz. to school to be a neurosurgeon. That's right. right. You, you, yeah. Yeah, you can't. Dr. You can't cheat in the OR. See you tomorrow, Sanjay. I'll be here tomorrow. Good. See you tomorrow, guys. Up next, we have uh, CNN exclusive. This is really, really chilling. A 911 call from a girl who was trapped inside the classroom with the Uvalde school shooter as the law enforcement was waiting outside for 40 minutes before they acted. Her mother is going to join us head to tell us what it's like to listen to her daughter call 911. There's a lot of things that are coming out of you. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Wednesday morning, everyone. Don Lemon alongside Poppy Harlow and Caitlin Collins here. It is Wednesday, November 2nd. We're so glad that you chose to wake up with us and tune in. Yeah, it's a big news day, too. It's a very big news day. So we're going to get right to it. The big questions this morning. Do politicians and their families need more protection after the attack on Paul Pelosi? Capitol Police making a desperate plea. The second big question this morning, what were those officers waiting for? We have exclusive and chilling 911 audio from a little 10-year-old girl. Her name is Chloe. She called police. She begged for help during the Uvalde school massacre. Our third question is whether or not former President Barack Obama can help push struggling Democrats over the line in the last few days before the midterms. The former president is campaigning today with Katie Hobbs in the Arizona governor's race. The Democratic candidate will join us live. And finally, this is a really important question. What would you buy (laughs) first if you won $1.2 billion, meaning after you picked yourself up off the floor, <laughs> the Powerball jackpot soaring to record highs. So we'll talk about all of that, but we're going to get to our big story this morning. The man accused of attacking Paul Pelosi was on a, quote, suicide mission. Court documents reveal that's what David DePap told police as uh, the Pelosi's San Francisco home, at the Pelosi San Francisco home. He also reportedly planned to target other politicians. Now, police say the moment DePap hit Paul Pelosi with a hammer was captured on body camera video. San Francisco's police chief says it is clear to him from viewing the footage that the suspect tried to kill Paul Pelosi. Sources are also telling CNN that U.S. Capitol Police first learned of the break-in about 10 minutes after the incident when an officer noticed the police lights and sirens on a live camera feed at the command center in Washington, that there were lights and sirens at the home there. With House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other lawmakers becoming targets, Capitol Police are calling for more security to protect members of Congress. Straight now to CNN's Whitney Wild, live for us on Capitol Hill. This is a very important uh, story here, uh, Whitney, because security for lawmakers at the utmost importance right now, and this story bringing it home for everyone. It is another data point on a long line of examples of why security is so necessary. The 2011 shooting of Gabby Giffords, the 2017 shooting uh, at the ball field, uh, Steve Scalise notably being shot in that case, the January 6th case. These are all the examples Capitol Police are pointing to, and they say we are desperately in need of more resources. This political climate is becoming more and more heightened, tenser and tenser by the day, and that requires more resources. 
uh, Capitol Police issuing a statement saying just that, uh, really sounding the alarm here, saying we believe today's political climate calls for more resources to provide additional layers of physical security for members of Congress. They have a plan, and they say it would include emphasis on adding redundancies to the measures that are already in place for congressional leadership. Uh, we very likely expect, based on what Capitol Police has told us, is that this plan will result in a formal request to Congress. We'll see how lawmakers take that. Uh, his first appearance yesterday, uh, David DePap making what happened? Well, he pleaded not guilty. He remains behind bars and he has to have no contact with the Pelosi family, Don. All right. Thank you, Whitney Wild. We appreciate that. Well, as calls clearly are growing after this attack for increased security for members of Congress, families as well. Former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson told CNN the political climate today is at least as combustible as it was in the 1960s. Listen to what he said. I'm a child of the 1960s. As you'll recall, within a five-year period from June 1963 to June 1968, we lost to assassination Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, John and Robert Kennedy. I think that this environment that we're in now is at least as combustible as the mid-1960s. But it's a miracle that no member of Congress was seriously injured on January 6th. It should not require someone to die before our leaders who command a microphone, who have a voice, uh, get together and decide we need to take the temperature down. He, he's exactly right. It should not take it. And you have sitting Republican and Democratic lawmakers, Debbie Dingell, Susan Collins, so many more warning, someone is going to die. Yeah. But I think people, they need to be more adamant, which is a conversation that we had yesterday, adamant about violence. There shouldn't be so much whataboutism uh, about what is happening. There shouldn't be so much both sides. And it does happen on both sides of the aisle. Our political, uh, our politicians should not be contributing to the violence. And yeah. you, we tend to, and you saw the pictures of, of the folks there who were assassinated in the 1960s. We tend to want to romanticize history. Um, our history has been very violent from the beginning, the start of this country. But as we progress as a society and as human beings, one would think that we would learn something from that the violence that has point. taken place. Well, one thing interesting that Governor Sununu said the other day when he was talking about this is he was saying it's not just about increasing security for lawmakers. That seems like an obvious answer. Well, they should have security. Well, Nancy Pelosi has security, but she wasn't home at the time that this attack happened. He talked about it being a fundamental conversation, basically in society, about right. how the fact that we do get to this where politicians are so dehumanized that people think that things like what David DePap did is okay, that he, sh he felt like he was called to do that and on this suicide mission. Well, he was co-opted and in large part by politicians. And that is a point. Listen, the people, we the people decide who the politicians are going to be. But if those politicians aren't honest in their actions and in their words, mm -hmm. then you end up with a David DePap mm -hmm. and, and other violence. That and takes the place. FBI's warning of an increase of it Around the midterms, yeah. you know? And there's a lot to discuss, especially when it comes to violence here. Um, yeah. We're talking about David DePap that was in, in California, but also in Texas as well. Yeah, obviously the aftermath of the Uvalde school shooting and what happened there is still present here. And we are learning new details that are incredibly chilling, including that it took 40 minutes yeah. for police to react wow. after a 10-year-old girl repeatedly called 911 from her classroom asking and begging them for help, asking them to send a police officer to her classroom. 
As the Uvalde school massacre was unfolding, the chilling call has been obtained exclusively by CNN. CNN's Shimon Prokupes is the one who broke this story. It's difficult to even read the quotes from Chloe in here as she was calling repeatedly saying, I don't want to die. My teacher is dead. Oh, my God. And this goes on and on and on for 20 minutes. It doesn't just end. And then there are more calls from Chloe. She's 10 years old. A remarkable young lady. So composed on the call, just begging. But not only that, her heroic efforts. And this is why her parents wanted her story out there. We spoke to them before we aired this, obviously, and they gave us permission to air this. Um, It is one of the most terrifying things I have ever listened to. For 20 minutes to hear kids begging for the police to come in and save their lives. But also the importance of this is that it shows just how horrendous the police response was that day. And we should warn our viewers that some of this audio you're about to hear may be difficult to listen to. We do have a child on the line. This was the moment everything at the scene in Uvalde should have changed. At 12.10 p.m. on May 24th, fourth grader Chloe Torres, who survived the shooting, was inside room 112 at Robb Elementary and spoke to 911. Police just a few feet away in the hallway were just minutes later made aware the worst-case scenario was unfolding. Chloe, along with her classmates and teachers, some dead or dying, were alone, trapped with an active shooter. It's the phone call that should have made the difference. Instead, it would be another 40 minutes until police finally enter the room and kill the gunman. CNN has obtained a call never made public until now. A warning to our viewers, it's painful to hear. We're choosing to play portions of the audio with the approval of Chloe's parents. And because it is crucial to understanding the full scope of the law enforcement failure that day. You can hear injured people in the room crying out in pain. The dispatcher asks Chloe to tell her classmates to stay quiet. She does her best. Less than two minutes into the call at 12.12 p.m., the Uvalde dispatcher sends an urgent message to police on the scene. Our child is advising he is in the room full of victims, full of victims at this moment. Can you confirm to see if that shooter is still standing? All right, John and If active shooter protocol had been followed, this dispatch should have triggered police to spring into action and breach the classroom. Instead, 38 minutes were allowed to go by as more officers arrive on scene with more equipment until something is done.
Nearly 400 officers responded in Uvalde. Chloe wanted to know where they were. How far are y'all away? They're inside of the building, okay? You need to stay quiet, okay? They're inside the building. You just need to stay quiet. On the other side of the door, the law enforcement response was disorganized and chaotic. Official reports detailed a catastrophic mistake that was made. Police on scene thought the shooter was a barricaded subject and not an active shooter. Chloe's call makes it clear an active shooter situation is unfolding. Body camera footage from local and state police departments obtained by CNN shows the officers on scene knew about the phone call and that there were children inside the room hurt and in desperate need of medical attention. We don't know if he has anybody in the room with him, do I think he does. He has eight or nine children. These are... No, we hadn't heard that. No, we're, we're in the fours, right? This is this is building fours? Anybody hurt? No, not here. No, sir. Yes, there are. Here? Yeah. You mess in there already? No, no, sir. We have a shooter still in there. Yeah. He's in here. He's in here. He's in yeah. Time right here. Be ready. The last contact. Hey, hold on. Last contact we had was one of our school PD officers. His wife was a teacher. She called him saying she's dying. They just had a number. A kid in room twelve. Yeah. A kid in room twelve. Most of our victims were twelve. And Shimon, you were the reason the parents actually got Chloe's parents actually got to hear this nine one one call. Can you tell us how that how that? Unfolded? Yeah. So. When we started reporting on the story, we reached out to the family, to the parents, both uh, Jamie and Ruben. And so we played the audio for them in its entirety. And Jamie, I could tell, was crying on the other end. It was the first time they had really listened to this call. What has been happening in this investigation is that it's been shut down. No one's been providing any information to the families. And really, the only way they're learning information is through us, you know, through reporters and a lot of the information that we have been able to obtain and report on. And it's, it should not be that way. But sadly, that is what's happening now. It, it is really sad. And Shimon, thank you, though, for it's important for people to hear this, to, to speak to the level of just how bad that police response was. Now practice. Thank you. So Shimon was just talking about the parents now and joining us now, Chloe's parents, Jamie and Ruben Torres. This is the first interview since the shooting. Uh, good morning to you. We appreciate you joining us. We're so sorry for what happened um, to Chloe and for everyone there in Uvalde. And we think that you're very brave uh, for doing this. The details are terrifying. And I have to ask you first off, um, how's Chloe? Um, she's not doing very good. Um... She's a really strong girl, so one day at a time is how we have to, you know, do it. Jamie, it is, uh, it is every mother's, every father's worst nightmare to imagine this happening to their child. When, when Shimon called you and played this audio for you and you hear your little girl, as we just heard, begging, saying, please send the police soon, please send the police soon. What was it like as a mother to hear her have to beg for that? Um, extremely sad. I'm really upset about it. Um, it's just no words can describe the feeling. And Ruben, you know, reading this, she's repeatedly calling the operator. And at one point your daughter says, I'm telling everyone to be quiet, but nobody is listening to me. I understand what to do in these situations. My dad taught me when I was a little girl. I know she's just 10 years old. You know, what did, what did you have, what kind of conversations did you have with her before this? 
<clears throat> well, the uh, you know the shootings ain't a surprise. They're happening all over our country, unfortunately. So uh, when shootings happen like this, I give scenarios. Uh, I was a Marine, and uh, <clears throat> you know I try to prepare them as much as possible uh, how to handle themselves in situations like that, how to help. Uh, that's the biggest thing, and. Uh, unfortunately, that's the one thing that didn't happen to uh, her and uh, her teachers and their students that day. They received absolutely zero help. Yeah. It's sad that you have to, to do this, but considering what's happening, when, you know, school shootings that happen all the time. And it's sad because um, they, they, stop, they stop getting the attention that they deserve. This story obviously deserves everyone's attention. It should stay at the top of, you know, the, the headline on the paper and the top of the newscast as it is now. And you felt that you had to prepare your child. And luckily you did because of so many things that are happening. Yes, you know, uh, and we see it now, you know, as, uh, as we go on day by day, she, I know, uh, wife has talked to uh, Shimon on the phone. Uh, she's just more, you know, more aware now. She's actually, you know, a lot of those kids actually that day, in my opinion, stopped being kids that day and now are, had to be as grown as parents, you know, in survival mode, protection mode. Uh, and, and that's what we see with our daughter. And that's what we hear from the other survivors as well. Uh, and it's it's pretty it's pretty sad and not just them it's now teachers as well yeah. now they're being distracted from actually doing and performing their duties and their mm-hmm. job as teachers which teaching now they have to you know do these drills now they have to be security guards when that's not yeah. their profession I just let me and just follow up on, on the preparation because you prepared sorry Papa you prepared her for this but can you prepare a child for what happened mm-hmm. After this, that's a question. That's something I don't think that any parent is, can do. Yeah. You don't really think that it would happen to you. Nobody <clears throat> thinks that it could happen to them. But I, I strongly advise all parents to, to talk about situations like this. Because you never know when they're going to use it. And, and with us, uh, it was simply uh, the phones i know phones are are real huge you know nowadays uh just just to have their phones and to be able to think in situations like that and uh and be able to use their phones that day uh going back she would always take her phone and uh i would notice that it'd be a distraction so she was kind of honoring us by not taking her phone Mm. because she knew it was a distraction so she was honoring us in that way and showing us that hey you know I don't, I want to respect y'all's wishes and not take my phone. And that day, it just, you know, heartbreaking. Cause it's like, man, she should have had her phone. You know, these are, these are little things that, uh, that can be crucial in a situation like that. Uh, so, and the way I prepare them is, you know, uh, always, always, you know, with life, uh, things going on around us, uh, always have your phone charged at night. If you're on the road by yourself, make sure you have your, your flashlight, be constantly on the lookout you know it's and yeah. it's just extremely sad to be talking to children that way because of jamie you know i think don i think you made such a good point because you said how do you prepare your child for what happens after this mm-hmm. as i understand it jamie chloe is not going to school she's doing online schooling you've got a librarian helping tutor her twice a week 
I mean, this fight for your Chloe, right? It says Chloe Strong on the state of Texas behind you. This is a lifelong fight now that she is going to have to fight, right? And it, and it it never it never ends, does it? No, it it'll never end. You know, she's she's very very different now. Can I ask? Can I ask? Before we let you go, and, and we're so grateful that you two are, are coming on to talk about this because we know how difficult it is. But what is it like to prepare Chloe to talk to her and have these conversations with her about what she should do if she's ever in this situation? And then to have the adults who are paid to be trained to respond to this situation wait that long, wait those 40 minutes of her calling repeatedly to ask for help before they responded? You know, it's really sad, like, that she had to do all of that and wait so long. Like, the officers didn't want to go in because they said we're waiting for armor or backup. You know, the, all the kids didn't have backup in there. Nobody had armor in there. You know, they were, they went through a lot, and they had absolutely no help. Yeah, clearly from, the, from the police. The adults around her failed her. But as parents, you are serving yeah. your child very well. Thank you very much, Jamie and Ruben. We really appreciate you joining us. And our best to Chloe. Um, please keep in touch with us so we know the progress and how you guys are doing. We really appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes, we appreciate you. you. Jamie and Ruby, Ruben Torres there. Um, wow, awful. She was failed. What a brave girl. She's got great, great parents. Shouldn't great, have had to parents. be so brave. And of course, as we go to break here, those are the, the people who died, sadly, the students and the teacher who died in that. We'll be right back. This morning, Ukraine says it has, quote, no effective defense against the ballistic missiles that Iran is planning to send to Russia. A Ukrainian Air Force official warns the missiles being supplied will allow Russian forces to strike anywhere inside Ukraine. This is a huge development, mm -hmm. and it could mean the war falling to Russia's side. CNN's Clarissa Ward joins us live from Kyiv. I mean, I think this is so important, uh, Clarissa, that they have been saying, the Ukrainians, we have air power, but we don't have the defense needed against these missiles coming from Iran. That's right, Poppy. Basically, what they're saying is we have air defense, but we don't have missile defense. And we don't have anything that really defends against these types of missiles. There are two in particular ballistic missiles that they're concerned about. One of them can travel about 200 miles. The other one can go 500 miles. And what the Air Force was basically saying is if you're firing those, if you're positioning those on Ukraine's uh, northern border, they can hit anywhere inside the country. And they just don't have the equipment to effectively intercept them. And by the way, that's not the only thing that they're anticipating that the Iranians are sending to the Russians in the beginning of November. So any day now we're talking about. The other thing they're very concerned about are these Arash-2 drones. They have roughly five times the amount of explosives that they can carry than those Shahed drones, which we have already seen have been used with devastating effect here in Ukraine. So really a lot of concern that in the coming days, you could start to see some yeah. really major weaponry arriving on the battlefield that they don't know how to contend with, frankly. And this, Clarissa, heading into the winter, heading into an energy crisis across Europe, uh, which 
Russia has much of the power on. I mean, we have learned that power outages in Kyiv are becoming much more widespread. How much does that complicate their ability to defend against all of this? So the irony is right now, Poppy, it is like unbelievably warm for right. this time we of year. See. You can see I'm standing here in Kiev. I'm wearing like a light sweater. But normally it would be very cold at this time of year. And you can certainly expect that in the coming weeks, the temperatures are going to plummet. Today, even three days after that initial barrage on Monday of Russian missiles targeting civilian infrastructure, there are still 18,000 households here in Kiev that have no power. Now, we've heard from Vitaly Klitschko, the Kiev mayor. He says they're going to set up these heating centers during the winter, a thousand of them around the city where there will be generators, there will be water, it'll be warm, you can get a cup of tea, you can charge your cell phone. And so they're trying to grapple and improvise with the moment to sort of mitigate the damage and devastation that this could have. But they have warned people that this is going to be the toughest winter that Ukrainians have lived through in quite some time, Poppy. Clarissa Ward, live for us in Kiev. Thank you. You've been on the ground for weeks, Clarissa. Your reporting adds so much every morning. Thank you very, very much. The interesting thing, if you look at Clarissa, where she is today, as opposed to where she was yesterday, it looks like, you know, normal city. Well, that's the thing in Ukraine, is that you may have some normality in one place, Mm -hmm. and then there's, everything is bombed out. The infrastructure is gone. So that's, and then at any moment, you never know what is going to happen, especially now that there's this threat of bringing in, um, more weapons from Iran. In the meantime, we're going to talk about North Korea as well, launching at least 23 missiles overnight. The South now responding. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, is here to discuss. She's next live on the program. We'll also talk about why Arizona voters are feeling forced to take extra precautions just to cast a ballot. Yeah, I covered my place because they're taking pictures and all that stuff. I mean, this is what we've come to in America, huh? These guys call themselves patriots? Really? This just in, we have major news on Russia's war on Ukraine. Russia has just said it will resume its participation in the deal that allowed grain that had been trapped by the war in Ukrainian ports to continue to be exported. This has major impacts on the food supply around the world. Obviously, Russia had threatened to suspend its participation, worrying officials. So we're going to talk about this, uh, all the other major major global headlines, with U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Joining us on set, we are so grateful for, for you to be here this Good morning, morning to answer morning. our Good questions. Morning. Thank you. Delighted to be here. And so this is massive news. Russia had said it was going to suspend its participation. Now it is saying it will not do so. What are the implications of this and what do you think is behind Russia's announcement here? Well, I heard the news as I was coming into to the show this morning and I was delighted to hear this news. And I want to first commend the U.N., the secretary general in particular, for continuing to negotiate this important deal because it's providing uh, needed food to the world. Uh, So clearly Russia was uh, finally convinced that they needed to continue this. They can't stand in the way of feeding uh, the entire world. 66 million tons of grain have been shipped from the Black Sea since this deal started. And the vast majority of that is going to poor countries in yeah. need of wheat. 
World Food Program, for example, gets about 50% of the wheat that it uses for humanitarian assistance from Ukraine and Russia. What was behind this convincing, you think? I think it was uh, the fact that they benefit. They benefit from this deal as well, because it's also moving grain from Russia. And just to make the point, this grain has never been sanctioned. The Russians tried to make that argument that we were sanctioning agricultural products. We've never sanctioned those products. And this is beneficial to Russia as well. Can I ask you about Iran? Because we had this new reporting yesterday on CNN that is so important. We know Iran has been sending drones to Russia to use in Ukraine. We've seen Zelensky talk about that. Now CNN has reporting that they are talking about sending ballistic missiles potentially to Russia, which obviously would be significant. What can the United Nations do to pressure Iran to stop sending drones, to not send ballistic missiles to Russia to use against Ukrainians? First and foremost, there are already sanctions against buying weapons from Iran. There's a resolution uh, that is being violated right now by Iran and by the Russians. And we are going to ramp up uh, the pressure uh, to bring other nations on board to condemn these actions, but also to hold Iran and Russia and any others who are dealing with Russia accountable. And what does that look like, the ramping up of pressure on I Iran? I mean, it looks like bringing this before the Security Council, condemning it in the Security Council, forcing uh, Russia and isolating, continuing to isolate Russia in the Security Council, but also to hold those countries who are assisting Iran and assisting uh, Russia accountable through the sanctions that we already have in place. This is a very simple question. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an overarching question that Americans ask. It's not Washington mm -hmm. speak, mm -hmm. right? What are we going to do about Vladimir Putin? You know, Putin is uh, really showing his lack of leadership. He's showing the world that he does not care about what uh, the impact of what he's doing on the world. He's isolated. We will continue to isolate him and we will continue to uh, publicize what he's doing so that he's not legitimized in the eyes of the world, nor is he legitimized in his own country. Ambassador, um, talking about Vladimir Putin, and that's such a critical question you asked on. Uh, the G20 is coming up this month. Caitlin uh, will be there for us and President Biden sat down with Jake Tapper, as you know, just a few weeks ago. And I want people to hear what he told Jake about uh, possibly meeting with Russian President Putin. Here he was. Would you be willing to meet with him at the G20? Look, I have no intention of meeting with him. But, uh, for example, if he came to me at the G20 and said, I want to talk about the release of Griner, I'd meet with him. I mean, it would depend. That was not a door-closed answer. So I wonder if you think the U.S. sees, do you see an upside for any kind of meeting, any face-to-face -face between Vladimir Putin and President Biden at the G20, especially if it could potentially lead to the release, for example, of Brittany Griner? Well, I think the president was clear on what his intentions are. He yeah. has no plans to meet with Putin, but he did say very, very clearly, and this is something that is a high priority for the president and for the entire administration is to get American citizens, including Brittany Griner, uh, released from, uh, from Russia. So the president uh, clearly indicated that he's prepared to do that. But uh, th we've not seen any evidence that the Russians are prepared to release. You know, him. we had 
our, our correspondent Will Ripley on this morning talking about the unprecedented move from North Korea uh, overnight, firing 23 missiles and the response from, from South Korea. Just, just explaining to our viewers how unprecedented this action is. What is your reaction to that this morning? It's unprecedented in the sense that there were so many. In modern this, history, <clears throat> so many so fast, exactly. Yeah, this day, but they have been continuously launching missiles over the past year. Uh, and uh, we have continued to condemn them because they break multiple Security Council uh, resolutions. The Chinese and the Russians joined us in those condemnations uh, earlier. Now they uh, have uh, protected uh, this regime, and we have right. to put pressure on them to improve on and, and really enhance the sanctions that we already have so, imposed so on them. So Biden will say that to President he's, Xi at the G20? Is that what he's going to well, say? Well, I can't uh, Would you like him what to? the president will say, but I know that this is on the president's mind. Okay. I've got two questions for you that we definitely have to ask while we have you with us. And one, this new New York Times report this morning saying that senior Russian military leaders have met to talk about when and how Russia might use a nuclear weapon if they do. Have you seen that intelligence that they are having those discussions? And what is it? So I'm not going to share any intelligence that I've seen, but this is absolutely irresponsible. It is not uh, the action that we would expect from a permanent member of the Security Council. They signed on themselves last year to a statement by the P5 that the use of nuclear weapons should never uh, take place. And the fact that they're doing this shows uh, that they have no confidence in, in, the, in themselves. And they're looking at every possibility to try to defeat the Ukrainians. And again, we will condemn these actions and bring this before the council as well. And the last topic for you, Israel is obviously having an important moment right now, and it looks like Netanyahu is about to potentially make a comeback. What's the United States' reaction to that? You know, I can't comment on the elections in Israel, but we'll say that we have a close relationship with the Israelis. We support Israel in the United Nations, and their elections will be determined by, uh, by them. But our support for Israel's right to defend itself, uh, for the unfair uh, uh, treatment of Israel in the United Nations, which I deal with on a regular basis, we will continue to fight against. Listen, we're, I'm going to keep you a little bit longer. I know that producers want to move on, but mm -hmm. since we have you here, and you're an important guest. I have to ask you, because I know this is near and dear to your heart, what's happening with Iran and human yeah. rights and women, and I know that's an important subject for you. It is an important subject, and today we will be having something that we call an ARIA formula meeting on Iran, where we will be highlighting uh, the conditions of Iranian women and supporting uh, the right, their right to, to protest. Uh, we will be bringing a number of countries together and uh, hopefully uh, send a message, one, to the Iranian women that we support them, but two, to the Iranian government that their actions are unacceptable. Could we be doing more? Instead of standing by and giving our support and saying, we support, we support, could we, the, the United States? Yeah. And, yeah, and, and well, we're, we are doing more. So we have already sanctioned uh, the uh, morality police and we're sanctioning others who are engaged with uh, these, pro uh, uh, with 
these protests and what they're doing uh, against the, the protesters. And we will continue to look for other actions that we can take yeah. to hold the Iranian government accountable yeah. uh, for these horrific acts against women and, and other protesters. Ambassador, we're so happy that you came in this morning. Thank you for spending. You spent a little bit more time, so time. Than, than with us than we you know, had expected. But again, these are really important Thank topics. You. And we're so glad to have you, of all people, weigh in on them. Absolutely. Did you get everything in that you wanted to talk about? I did. Thank you very much and you. really appreciate you your focusing on these important issues. They are critical, critical to our audience in the world. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. All right, up next, we are going to talk about a federal judge restricting how a right-wing group can patrol Arizona drop boxes as voters are feeling intimidated. We've got Donia Sullivan here with what is driving those election conspiracies. We will also discuss that and the latest in the race to be the next governor of Arizona. Democratic candidate Katie Hobbs joins us. There she is. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. As we look at that beautiful shot of the Capitol there this morning, a federal judge in Arizona imposing new restrictions against right-wing groups after voters complained about aggressive patrols of ballot drop boxes in that state. CNN's Donny O'Sullivan reports now. Yeah, I covered my place because they're taking pictures and all that stuff. I mean, this is what we've come to in America, huh? These guys call themselves patriots? Really? The effects of election conspiracy theories are already on full display here in the swing state of Arizona. Armed men stalking vote drop boxes, prompting voters to hide their identities, and even cover their license plates as they go to vote. If a guy's standing over there, he's got his face covered, he's got, and he's armed, what's that tell you? They don't want you to vote. Hmm. They don't want you to vote. Ballot drop boxes are the target of conspiracy theorists who falsely believe that they were used to steal the 2020 election. It's called 2,000 Mules. Central to all of this is the movie 2,000 Mules. It was released in May and Trump even hosted a screening of it at Mar-a-Lago. The movie falsely claims that so-called mules are casting hundreds or thousands of votes at drop boxes. We're actually seeing mules be intimidated <laughs> for, you know, from doing their thievery. The organizer behind many of the Dropbox watchers said she was inspired by the movie to take action. We believe that there was something stolen in 2020, and just because you don't, we do. But the kind of people her group are seeing are not mules. They are real voters who are now afraid. I could never come down here alone. And, you know, I couldn't do it myself. No. I, I it's scary. It's just flat-out insane. It's voter intimidation. The movie has been roundly debunked by cyber experts and election officials. This is not a technical report that would hold any water. This is not research that would hold any water. And indeed, when we see what governments who have been provided with this data have said, it's pretty clear that they're deeply unimpressed with this as well. Thank you, Mr. President. Even former Attorney General Bill Barr, who was appointed by Trump, told this to the January 6th committee. The election was not stolen by fraud. And uh, I haven't seen anything since the election that changes my mind on that, including the 2000 Mules movie. <laughs> Nevertheless, the lies persist. If you talk to people who don't believe that the election was fair in 2020, uh, nine times out of 10, one of the first things they're going to bring up is 2000 Mules. You've seen it? I yes. sure have. What do you think? 
I think very accurate. Very accurate, and I think it's, they're going to try it again. We met Anola Gay-Bajinska and her son Roger outside an event for Carrie Lake, the Republican election denier running for governor of Arizona. They swear by the movie. How many times have you seen Four times. I've watched it three times. Republican chair of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors warns the lies in the movie are a threat to democracy. They've dehumanized folks with this term mule. These are people who are exercising their right to vote in this democracy. This dehumanization that's going on in our political discourse right now is very dangerous because it does justify uh, the use of violence. People who want to watch 2,000 Mules have to pay up to 20 or $30, a price many are willing to pay. I bought actually the 2,000 Mules to hand out to friends that are non-believers. And they come back and they go, oh my God, wow. I have How many no copies idea. did you buy? All total, I bought 12 copies. But not all Republicans want to buy into the lies. And I'm a Republican. But I'm an American first. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I voted a lot of times. I'm in my 60s. And this is the first time that an election's ever been stolen. Right? I mean, come on. Now, a federal judge ruling overnight that armed men like you see in that piece there, they need to stay at least 250 feet away from these vote drop boxes. Arizona is, of course, an open carry state, uh, but it's not really a good look for what is supposed to be a healthy democracy if you have guys with guns at the ballot box. Just real quickly, just to be clear, these are Democrats and Republicans. They're equally disturbed by this, what they... Absolutely. That last gentleman we spoke to there, a lifelong Republican, uh, and he thinks that this is all really a disgrace. Donny, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Great, Great reporting. reporting. Again, as always, joining us now to talk about that and a lot more is Arizona's Democratic gubernatorial candidate, Katie Hobbs. She is currently Arizona's Secretary of State. Secretary Hobbs, thank you for your time this morning. I have to ask your reaction to Donny's reporting. As Don said, we heard from Republicans and Democrats very concerned about this. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that my office has been concerned about as well. Uh, we have continued to forward complaints of this type of activity to the Department of Justice. I'm uh, very glad about the ruling yesterday um, that, that uh, provided for a restraining order on this type of activity because we have received so many reports of voters feeling intimidated. Yeah. I have to ask you, um, listen, why not? I want to talk about your debating. Why not debate your opponent? If you believe your opponent is, you know, has issues in the spreading conspiracy theories uh, about a stolen election and so mm -hmm. on, and it's not being truthful with the, the people of Arizona, why then not get on the debate stage and, and debate her? You know, not only is Carrie Lake, has she centered her entire platform around this election denialism, um, I didn't want to give her a bigger stage to do that. But additionally, she has shown that she's not interested in having any kind of substantive conversation. Um, she's only interested in creating a spectacle. But and I didn't you, if want you to were in the same space with her, wouldn't you be? Wouldn't it be easier to knock it down in front of everyone, in front of the most people? Because you're not stopping her from spreading yeah. whatever you believe that you she know, is I spreading by not debating her. She can go on television. She can talk about it. She can go in front of the the people of Arizona every single day and talk about it, but you're not confronting her on it. And it seems like it would be an easy fix if you stood up on a debate stage and, and confronted her about these issues. Look, we're six days out from the election and our campaign strategy is our campaign strategy. So we're moving forward. I'm continuing to make my case to the voters of Arizona, uh, whether or not 
we debated in this race is not going to decide this election. So, um, you know, I just we made the decision, didn't want to be a part of her spectacle. And she's not uh, she she won't answer these tough questions um, to to real reporters. She only talks but, to fake But Secretary, news it's not just her that you won't debate. You also did not debate your Democratic primary opponent, Marco Lopez. Why? And have you ever I was, have you I ever was miles ahead of him? I was miles ahead of him in the race and won handily. It's a totally different situation here. Well, it's it's not debating your opponent again. Have you ever debated your opponent running for political yes, office? I yes, I have. Why do you think it wasn't important for people to see a debate in this election for governor at all? Uh, in the primary, I was focused on the general election. I was miles ahead of my opponent. I won handily. Um, it wasn't an issue. Um, we're six days from the election, and uh, this is this is the decision we made. So, one thing debates are good for, obviously, is talking about policy differences on the issues. One of the biggest issues is, is right now is the economy, and Arizona has one of the highest inflation rates in the United States. A lot of that is driven by the high cost of housing. Do you think that your party has done an effective job at communicating to voters what your economic message is? Well, uh, I don't know about my party, but I can tell you that we're talking about the economy to voters every single day. It's one of the top concerns. And we're talking about the plans that we have to actually address uh, inflation and the skyrocketing housing prices and um, groceries and everything else. Uh, I have uh, uh, an affordable Arizona plan. We unveiled our housing plan yesterday. Uh, and uh, these are these are plans that provide real solutions that put money back in people's pockets, give them tax breaks on everyday items. Um, and uh, economic experts have looked at my plan and, and, and said it's really good. Uh, so that's what we're talking to Arizonans about, how we can provide meaningful relief on day one. Uh, Carrie Lake doesn't have a an economic plan that does anything except make inflation worse. And quickly on abortion, you know, you spoke with our colleague Dana Bash recently. I didn't feel like you really answered her question on abortion, so I want to give you another chance to do so. What limits on abortion do you support? I have been unequivocal in this answer. I believe the decision to have an abortion should be between a woman and her doctor, period. Politicians and the government don't belong in these kind of medical decisions. So does that mean that as governor then, you would veto any law with any limit on abortion? I would veto any additional restrictions on abortion that are sent to my desk as governor, yes. So that's a yes. Thank you, Secretary Hobbs. We appreciate your time this morning. Thanks Thank so much. We'll be right back. There you go. It's very clear to me from viewing that body-worn camera is he tried to kill Mr. Pelosi. Good morning, everyone. It is the top of the hour. We're so happy that you could join us this morning. I'm Don Lemon. Poppy Harlow, Caitlin Collins are here. It is November 2nd, so welcome to CNN this morning. As you've been with us throughout this morning, you can see that we have a lot of news, so we're going to get to it. A lot to get to this morning, including new details about the, quote, inside suicide mission that Paul Pelosi's attacker was on and the evidence members of the Pelosi family are about to see and hear. 
Also losing faith in the election system. A new CNN poll reveals how many voters already distrust the results of the midterm elections before they even come in. And wow, (laughs) caught on camera, this Texas woman who was gored by a bison in a state park. You are going to hear from her during and after that attack. Yeah, very busy Wednesday here uh, in the country. We're going to begin, though, with this new reporting. Members of the Pelosi family will soon be able to hear audio from the 911 call Paul Pelosi made to police on the night he was assaulted. They will also get to see police body cam footage of that brutal attack. We're going to begin this morning with CNN's Jamie Gangel. Jamie, good morning to you. What do you know? Good morning, guys. Well, you know, Don, as you said, uh, the police, the local San Francisco police, the DA are providing members of the Pelosi family. They will be the first to hear uh, that 911 call, which we know lasted about three minutes. That may be critical because as the details are coming out, we're getting sort of a real time narration of what was going on. And, of course, the body cam footage, which the DA told CNN yesterday, you will see. So members of the Pelosi family are going to actually see the attack where Paul Pelosi was hit in the head with the hammer and his skull was fractured on. And, Jamie, uh, we we have finally heard from the district attorney on last night talking to Aaron. I thought that was a really interesting, informative interview, both about what they could say and what they couldn't say. I wonder what stood out to you. So I, I think a combination of the DA and, and what we've heard from the police chief, first of all, this phone call lasted three minutes. Uh, we're getting extraordinary detail about what the assailant said to police, volunteered, that it was a suicide mission. And that, that uh, sound you just played from the police chief, I, I think is critical to Anderson Cooper last night. He said that it was crystal clear to him that DePap intended to kill Paul Pelosi. And let's not forget the intended target was Nancy Pelosi. This was yeah. political. Yeah. yeah. And Jamie, so much of your coverage has, has also had to factor in these conspiracies that now right. these officers, the investigators, are, are essentially having to debunk in real time. But it's the more the facts come out, the more like a crazy conspiracy, it seems. Right. So a, a couple things. First of all, shame on all these people who, who are spreading this nonsense. I, I think we need a new word for conspiracy theories. I think we need mm-hmm. to call them lies. But uh, as far as civility is concerned, enough is enough. This, this is just crazy. We, we're living in a very polarized country. This is clearly only making it worse. I would just add on a political note, we are a week away from Election Day. I'm not saying the Republican base that follows this is going to dramatically change. But in some of these tight races, maybe it will make a difference around the edges, Caitlin. Well, I think you're right, Jamie. It's not lies. Dangerous lies. Deadly lies. Dangerous lies. Deadly lies. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you, Jamie. Appreciate sure. it. Thank Jamie, you. thank you, as always. All right, let's talk about new numbers this morning. We're just days from the midterms. New CNN polls show Republicans are showing a strong position ahead of next week's midterms. The economy is at the forefront of what most of voters care about, while only 3% say crime is the most important issue this election season for them. Let's bring in CNN political director David Chalian. David, good morning good to morning. you. What do the numbers tell us?
Well, this uh, brand new batch of polling that we're bringing to you from our exclusive CNN poll deals uh, with confidence in election results. I mean, this kind of keys off your conversation uh, with Jamie Gengel in terms of the overall political environment. Take a look. Are you confident that the U.S. elections will reflect the will of the people? This is a divided nation. 50% are confident, 50% of Americans are not. And take a look by party. So Democrats, far more confident than not, 61 to 39%. Independents, roughly split, 49 to 51. But Republicans, 59% of Republicans are not confident that the U.S. elections will reflect the will of the people. Four in 10 Republicans are. And if you look over time, we do see slight uptick in confidence across all parties. So a slight uptick from June, July to now, 57 to 61% among Democrats, among independents, it's up 11 points confidence. And we've seen significant growth in confidence among Republicans, though as I just showed you, more Republicans are distrustful than, than trust. Mm. Right. And, yeah. Go ahead, David. No, no, please. Go ahead, Poppy. I'm just asking what the numbers show about greater Republican confidence in the election system. And obviously so much of this stems from election denialism continuing from the former president on down. Yeah. I mean, we just asked straight out, did Joe Biden legitimately win enough no votes for the presidency? That's what we asked in this poll. And overall, the American population, two thirds, yes, 67%. A third of Americans, 32%, say no, he did not. Now, this is overall. I want you to look at this by party. Democrats overwhelmingly, independents overwhelmingly, but Republicans are a complete reversal of the public overall. 66%, two-thirds of Republicans say that Joe Biden did not win enough votes to legitimately win the presidency in 2020. And that Unbelievable. Is, yeah. David, thank you uh, very much. Appreciate that. The but White that's, House guys. is like, um, but well, he, we've been in office. Hey, so. But here's the thing, though, and we can't just gloss over that. It, look, David did a great job on the numbers, right? We, this is the numbers. That, this is more than just about numbers. This is the crux of what is happening in this country, and this is the crux of why um, Tuesday is so important because people believe in lies. The election was not stolen. This was the most secure election in our history. And you have to look at who has been spreading those lies. Why there is a lack of who, trust who and confidence in the system. running process is still spreading still those spreading lies. lies. And winning on those lies. And that is the bigger question rather than just, oh, what are the polls showing? What is it? The bigger question is who's doing it? And why is it happening? And why are American voters allowing uh, things like that to happen? Because we shouldn't be. This is really important stuff. And this is why Tuesday is really important. Election deniers, quite honestly should not have the momentum that they have right now. And there's a big the race. The truth should have the momentum. You know, we've talked about a lot of these Senate races and what the can who the candidates are, what they stand for. You know, we just talked to one of the Democratic candidates for governor in Arizona, but also a race that people have not been paying as close of attention to that is really something everyone in Washington is watching is Nevada, Nevada. and the Senate yeah. race there. And, you know, it could ultimately determine who controls the Senate. And the incumbent is really thought to be the most vulnerable Democrat in the Senate. And so who do you call to rally voters in the final campaign days? If you are a Democrat and you are freaking out right now. On the big guns. Barack Obama, of course. CNN's Manu Raju is live in Las Vegas. Manu, you know, Democrats typically did not think they'd be worried about this seat, but now it is one of the most worrisome that they are facing. 
Yeah, no question about it. And Barack Obama was at a rally just north of here last night trying to fire up Democratic voters, attacking Republicans up and down the ticket, including Adam Laxalt, who was running for the Senate. Laxalt was Donald Trump's co-chair in Nevada. Obama criticizing him over Laxalt's effort to overturn the 22 election results, his ties to the oil industry, and his plans in dealing with inflation, which, of course, is a driving issue in the race. Democrats have been racking up major victories in Nevada for the better part of a decade. But next week, that trend could come to an abrupt end. First-term Senator Catherine Cortez Masto trying to cling onto her seat amid a GOP offensive that could knock off Democrats up and down the ticket here. Catherine Cortez Masto rubber-stamped Joe Biden's reckless spending. As Republicans seek to tap into voter anger over inflation and high gas prices. With polls showing the race deadlocked between Cortez Masto and her GOP challenger, former state attorney general Adam Laxalt, Democrats are calling in the big guns. I'm here to ask you to vote. That's too many of you. As he joined musician John Legend in rallying Democratic voters, former President Barack Obama sounding the alarm. Tuning out is not an option. The only way to save democracy is if we together fight for it. But one person not at the North Las Vegas rally, President Joe Biden, who Democrats have kept at an arm's length. President Obama is here today. Why not President Biden? You know what? There have been a lot of people have offered to come here. You want Biden to run for re-election? I'm focused right now on this election and making sure that I'm getting around talking to the Bidens. Laxalt, meanwhile, has aligned himself with Donald Trump. So back in the Trump era, they could try to blame anybody they want. They can only blame themselves now. Appearing at a rally with the former president in rural Nevada last month and with his eldest son, Donald Trump Jr., last week. You guys ready to take your country back? But Laxalt has limited his interactions with the press, even dodging CNN's questions at an event last week and his campaign blocking our access to the candidate. Strategists in both parties say the two candidates are not well known among the electorate with roughly 300,000 new voters here since Cortez Masto won her first race in 2016. And more than 30 years have passed since Laxalt's grandfather, Paul Laxalt, was a senator. The charmed life of Adam Laxalt, always looking out for himself. That has allowed for outside groups to try to define them across the airwaves, dropping nearly $110 million in just the past two months. Hey guys. As she toured a major solar project outside of Las Vegas, Cortez Masto touted renewable energy and the bipartisan infrastructure law and attacked Laxalt on abortion. You're in a state right now that is a proud pro-choice state. My opponent's on the other side of that. Now, this Senate race actually will not feature a single Senate debate. Democrats believe that is a concerted strategy by Laxalt, who has limited his interviews mainly to friendly media interviews. But Democrats I talked to here are also concerned that Cortez Masto has not effectively defined herself despite being the first woman and Latina senator from the state. I asked her about those concerns. She downplayed it. She pointed to her record and noting she's a third-generation Nevadan. Caitlin? Yeah, it's been a big question on what Democrats' messages in these final closing days. Manu, thanks for that report. Don't forget, we will be covering the election very closely here at CNN. We start at 4 p.m. Eastern next Tuesday. We will be going all night with Don, Poppy, and I. Yeah, that's when it starts, when it ends. 
who knows? <laughs> that is exactly right. Did you hear the laughing in the studio? These I guys heard know. there was a cackle in the back yeah. there. All right, the Supreme Court, though, denying Senator Lindsey Graham's request to avoid testifying before an Atlanta-area grand jury investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. So he's going to have to talk. What does this all mean? Money, 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 <laughs> money. <laughs> Some serious cash up for grabs tonight. So what are your odds of winning Powerball? Well, we kind of know, but we still have to talk about it. Data's here, and that means Harry Anton is going to break down the numbers. We will be right back after this message. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Phillies wild ride continuing. Now they are just two wins away from a World Series title. They rolled past the Astros in game three last night, seven to nothing. Bryce Harper's two-run blast in the first inning was all they really needed, but there was a lot more. Four other Phillies went deep as well. And they're the first team, y'all, to hit five homers off the same pitcher in a World Series game. That's not good. Phillies, no one's not. not <laughs> the Phillies That's are undefeated at home during this postseason. They lead the series two games to one. Game four is tonight, back at Citizens Park, uh, Bank Park in Philadelphia. That's not good. We all got to watch. <laughs> well, yeah, look, I'm happy for them, but that's not good getting that many. Woo. Okay, awesome so game. apparently, I guess the Astros are feeling lucky. Would you say that? Um, the Phillies. The Phillies. I'm sorry. The Phillies are oh. feeling lucky. Sorry about that. <laughs> the Phillies fans at home right now are like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Oh, maybe they're feeling lucky. Are you feeling lucky? I am. Because Tell I get to why. sit between you two people, uh, but also because Harry Inton is coming up. So uh, Powerball right now, huge. Tonight's jackpot stands at $1.2 billion. <laughs> A second largest amount in Powerball's 30-year history. So here to break it down, our senior data reporter, Mr. Harry Inton. Data, so... <laughs> Did you get us all tickets this morning? Uh, no, but if you want, we could have a group activity afterwards. We can all go out to the local, you know, shop and maybe get some candy and a few tickets as well. And, Don, you stole my line. I was going to say that I was lucky to be on set with y'all. Well, so. you are. That's true. So. It, 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 it's true. But why don't we walk over to this little magic wall over here, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Powerball, get an idea of what Americans are thinking about the lottery. So I think the first question that we all ask is, if you, in fact, win the lottery would you share it with your friends and family? 87% of Americans say, yes, in fact, they would. I'm kind of iffy on it, but maybe I'd share it with Don. Definitely Poppy and Caitlin, though. Here's another big question for you. Would you quit your current job if you won the lottery? 62% of Americans said, yes, they would. I think I'm in the no camp. I like being with these folks. All right, how about some lotto advice? Because I think the number one question is, how do we actually win this freaking lottery, right? How do we win it? So then we can go on the vacations to wherever we want. Maybe I can go up to Buffalo, enjoy the lake effect snow and the Buffalo Bills up there. Here's the big piece of advice I would give you. Pick numbers larger than 31. Why? Because most people pick birthdays, anniversaries, dates. And of course, there's no month that has more than 31 days in it. The final little nugget that I would tell you is there are no lucky states for Powerball winners. You know, I was talking off stage with uh, one of our producers, Annie, and she was like, don't buy a ticket in New York City. We yeah. never win there. The fact of the matter is the states with the most Powerball winnings are the ones that have the most populations. Florida, California, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee. So it's all luck, unless, of course, you pick above 31.
That's actually really interesting. And I think my dad should be watching this because he always buys lottery tickets. He never wins. He, and we live in Alabama. We don't have the lottery, so I would have to go and buy him the tickets so he could make sure. Otherwise, people drive to states like Florida to go and get a ticket. I don't see what, what but the computer picks the number, right? You, you, Not right, always. The computer picks the number. But here's the thing, right? If you're choosing the number, you don't want to split. Your, you don't want to split. You don't want to split. That's what I forgot to say. Sometimes when you're on TV, yeah, you I'm saying, why over 31? Because the numbers are random. Because, here's the deal. If you, in fact, pick the same numbers as somebody else, you're going to split your winnings with somebody else, right? So I you get wanna, that. You, but the computer picks the numbers. The computer doesn't care if it's 31 or 8 or Right. Here's the deal. If, if, if done, if you and I yeah. pick all the same numbers, correct? Then we're going to have to split the lottery. We're going to have to split the winnings. What I want to do is maximize my profit. So I don't have to share my winnings with you, and then you have to come begging me All right, for more money. All right, it maximizes the prof, the, your profit, but it doesn't increase your chances it of It doesn't winning. increce your That's chance of thing. winning, right. but increases your chance of getting All the right, largest Dana, I'm win. I'm just trying to get some. I got it for you. This Thank you. really interesting, Thank you, Harry. Harry. Thank you. Harry. Thank you. Harry. Thank you. <laughs> appreciate that. Thanks, Harry. All right, early voting in Georgia is almost at historic levels. We'll talk about what is fueling the enthusiasm among voters there. We're also going to talk about this. A bison attack caught on camera. CNN spoke to the woman in this now viral video. Oh, 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 my God! The Supreme Court has declined to block a subpoena for Republican Senator Lindsey Graham to testify in front of a special special grand jury in Atlanta. The court's order said that the questioning, which was allowed by lower courts, can be limited. The grand jury, of course, is investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential vote in Georgia. So joining us now to talk about this is Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. He's the author of Integrity Counts. He is running for re-election and Mr. Raffensperger, obviously, the reason that the district attorney wants to talk to Lindsey Graham about this is because of calls that he made to you. And so I wonder, when, when Senator Graham was calling you, what did you believe was the purpose behind that phone call? He was calling about the process uh, we had for accepting absentee ballots. Uh, back in 2020, we were using signature match, and uh, people wanted to make sure that that was actually being you know, done. And many people had questions about that process. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, post-2020, a lot of people that probably, you know, weren't as well-versed in election security, you know, were then starting to take a look at things and asking questions. But did you think there was a legislative purpose behind Senator Graham's phone calls to you? Well, uh, I don't know exactly what they do up in Washington, D.C. I think that's one of the reasons that we're having such strong turnout right now. People are frustrated with what is going on up in Washington, D.C. People are really seeing the pocketbook issues. Uh, but I think that's part of the process, and I'm going to let the grand jury do what they do, and I want to make sure that we have a fair and honest election you know, coming up this coming Tuesday. We have record turnout right now. That's what our focus is, it, this election. If he denies that or anything about uh, asking you to, to do something with this election, is he essentially lying to the grand jury? Oh, well, I think they'll let them do their process. Uh, you know, what, you know, we've had our statements, and he'll have his, and that's all in, you know, sealed process. But like I said, you know, our big issue is like last night we passed over 1.9 million early voters. That's record turnout. We have three more days of early voting. Uh, we'll know we're, we're going to be over 2 million here t- uh, sometime midday today. And so uh, we're just really focused, making sure everyone knows that their vote will count. We have honest and fair elections here in Georgia.
And let's not miss it. I mean, you make such an important point. It is great. Everyone should be celebrating how many people are turning out to vote early, how many are expected to go to the polls on Election Day, right? It's, it's fundamental to, to our democracy. Um, mm -hmm. You've nearly matched the 2020 election in terms of number of early votes. Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, though, says this is happening in spite of Georgia's new-ish uh, voting law, SB202, not because of, right? Her argument is that limited the number yeah. of people who can vote. We're seeing the numbers. We don't know who's voting, but we're seeing the numbers. What do you say to her? Uh, her argument's, it's silly. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. You're having record turnout. We now have photo ID for all forms of voting. We've instituted photo ID. We modeled it after Minnesota law, which they've been using photo ID for absentee voting now for over 10 years. And that really helps you identify with, you know, enhanced security and confidence in the process. And so we're seeing that people really feel that we have safe, secure, and honest elections. And look at the numbers. We're having record turnout for early voting. People are seeing that the, the lines are moving quickly. We're not seeing any major issues of any, in any area. All 159 counties are, are doing their job, making sure that people have a smooth process. And we're just expecting that to continue. Uh, we've been recognized actually by, you know, the Center for Election Innovation Research, which is on the left side of the aisle. And then we've also been recognized by Heritage on the right side of the aisle for having strong, accurate, and elections with integrity. And that, I think that's accessible and also having, you know, the right appropriate guardrails in place. But so just we can because, listen, voters. I've got it. Just because people are voting in record numbers, it doesn't mean that there still aren't suppressive efforts. And you look at what happened with the, the, the drop boxes, the number of drop boxes being reduced in certain areas, especially in, uh, in black and, and brown areas, um, and where they can be located and the hours that they can be located. Why isn't it important? Because it, it worked during the pandemic, it worked during COVID. Why is it not important to open up um, as many places as possible to make it as easy as possible, as many days as possible for people to be able to get out and vote? Well, you made a very key point when you said about during the pandemic. During the pandemic, we had 25% of the people, you know, were voting absentee. And that's why, as an emergency measure, drop boxes were put into as an administrative rule. But that went out after the senatorial runoffs. They weren't allowed. And so for the very first time, they were actually codified and put into state law. We're now back to about 6 to 7% of people voting absentee. So the numbers are down by 80% of but who's voting absentee. But why wouldn't that be something that you would learn from if it worked during the pandemic? It doesn't mean just because you had the pandemic. Maybe this was something that actually worked and you would learn from it and say, wow, look how many people we gave access to, to voting. No? Yeah. And, and now we have 80% less people voting absentee. They're based on population. You get one for every 100,000 voters. And then obviously next session, the General Assembly can look at it. And should that be tweaked? Should there be a few more drop boxes? But it's population based. Every county has to have one. Back in 2020, we had nearly 40 counties that did not have a single drop box. Now every county has to have a drop box. But the fact of the matter is we have safe and secure elections. We have photo ID for absentee voting, photo ID for in-person voting. We have record turnout. It's never been easier to register. We have record registrations. We have 6.9 million registered voters, active registered voters. And it looks like me, we will probably be pushing well over 4 million, which is what we had in 2018. We won't hit the presidential number of 5 million, but still, we're showing that it's here as the proper guardrails and accessibility. And we believe that we're the model for election integrity, but also election access. Yeah, yeah it's Everyone remarkable the, the numbers. And when I interviewed Governor Kemp, he told me the same thing. He said that this is proof that what President Biden and what other Democrats have said about that new election law is wrong. 
Brad Raffensperger, we appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. We know you got a lot of early voting going on, so we'll let you get back to that in Georgia. All eyes Thank you. will be Thanks on so the state where he is, Georgia, coming up on Tuesday. Yeah. A couple of others, Arizona, but Georgia is a big one as well. But coming up in the next few minutes, we have caught on camera this Texas woman who was gored by a bison in a state park. Oh, You'll hear what was happening, her thoughts right as this attack was underway. Oh, oh my God. Have you seen the video? That's my... I mean, like that to you is You're gonna have to see this one, this next one, to believe it. it. And I'm sure, me. I'm sure this woman could not believe what happened. But guess what? She lived to tell about it. You would say she's lucky to be alive, but I don't think this is, uh, you know, very lucky. There, she was gored by a bison. You may recall that Rebecca Clark shared a video of the attack last month that exploded on social media. CNN's Ed Lavendera spoke with her. Ed joins us now from Texas. Ed, what a crazy experience. Yeah, you know, Rebecca Clark's survival story is, is that. It's a, quite a, an amazing survival story, but it is more than that. It really puts the spotlight on decades of efforts to save one of the most iconic animals in North America. Walking under the vibrant sky and rustic cliffs of Caprock Canyon State Park feels like a journey into a lost age. In this corner of West Texas, this sprawling land is home to a herd of Southern Plains bison, a species that centuries ago dominated the landscape. Today, it's a park where the bison and the humans roam. So this is kind of just my uh, memory wall. Last month, Rebecca Clark visited the park for a week of solo hiking. That's actually him. She didn't think the experience would end up immortalized on this wall. I want to remember that time and all the things that happened. It's a story she's lucky to tell. Come on, keep going. I just want to get by, okay? Clark recorded on her phone as she crossed paths with bison roaming past a trail much closer than the 50 yard minimum distance recommended. At what point did you realize you were in trouble? Well, I think it's when I used profanity <laughs> in my video. Uh, Thank you, I appreciate it. When I saw him turn, it's like instantly I knew he was gonna come after me. Oh, no, no. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh my God! The bison gored Clark in the back. It was so fast. He hit me in the back, rammed me, hooked me, and then flipped me up face forward into the mesquite bush. What is going through your mind at that time? I thought I was paralyzed. You've kept the backpack intact? Oh yes, this is my backpack. I might wash it eventually. I had to eat a lot of humble pie for this one. The bison's horn cut a wide gash in her back. I still know that I was too close. You know, I wasn't as diligent as I should have been. Clark posted her video on TikTok. It went viral and it also put the spotlight on this unique state park. The bison are definitely the keystone species. Donald Beard is the superintendent of Caprock Canyon State Park and a passionate advocate of growing bison herd populations across the country. It's really cool to be able to drive through this park and have bison walk across the road in front of you and see them and know the history of them. In the 1870s, the Texas bison were decimated in the Great Slaughter, but famed ranchers Charles and Marianne Goodnight saved a few. The descendants of those bison were bred and kept on a private ranch for decades. 
In 2011, the park released the bison to begin roaming freely through much of this 15,000 acre park. Since then, Beard says, the herd grew from 80 animals to 350. The song, give me a home where the buffalo roam, that's where we live. Visitors are warned repeatedly to keep their distance. Here, the bison are king. They are survivors. You know, they've survived our best attempt at trying to get rid of them. And, and they're making a comeback. Has this changed your relationship with this animal? I'm sorry, gosh, oh, yeah. I can't believe you did this to me. <laughs> I'm trying to protect the opportunity to go experience nature. This is what makes Rebecca Clark emotional. She'd be devastated if her encounter prevents others from this bison experience. You love the outdoors that much? No, I think that's... Yeah, wow. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Wow. <laughs> no, you just had an aha moment for me there. So, yeah. I hope I didn't yeah. keep somebody else from that. So, guys, uh, Rebecca Clark says she is well on her way to recovery, that she'll be hiking again, uh, enjoying the outdoors here by, by in, uh, pretty soon, by the end of the year. And uh, Donald Beard there, the superintendent of the park, says that his goal is to increase the bison population herd here in Texas up to 2,000. But he needs to find other places across the southern plains where these animals can continue to thrive. Yeah. And Levandera, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Thank you, Ed. President Biden and former Presidents Trump and Obama all traveling, guess where? Pennsylvania this weekend in a last-ditch effort to energize voters before Tuesday's election. Will it make a difference? Pennsylvania's Attorney General, candidate for Governor Josh Shapiro is here next. All right, as we reported earlier, a really telling new CNN poll shows Republicans with quite an advantage just days away from the midterms. And guess what? It's the economy, stupid. Remember yeah. that? And it is again. 51% of voters say that is their big number one issue. There's not even a close second. Joining us now to talk about the economy and a whole lot more, Pennsylvania's Democratic candidate for governor, uh, Josh Pirro. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. And let, let's talk about the economy. So much of this, as you know, is about inflation and You've got a Democrat in the White House. You've got Democrats controlling uh, the House and the Senate, and inflation is out of control. My question to you is, as governor, there's not a lot you can do to deal with inflation, but you do oversee all these state agencies, right, that deal with tax policy, that deal with uh, grants, that deal with aid to those suffering. What would you do as governor to help people struggling with the economy, with inflation? Well, look, obviously, this is not an issue created by the governor of the Commonwealth or, you know, the state lawmakers. But I do think we have a responsibility to address it, to bring down costs for Pennsylvania families. That's why many months ago I leaned in on this issue and put forth a concrete plan to reduce costs for Pennsylvanians. First, we would cut business taxes. Second, we get rid of those nuisance taxes here in Pennsylvania, like the cell phone tax. Every Pennsylvanian with a cell phone pays 11 percent more on their bill each month. Third, we're gonna double what's known as the property tax rent rebate and double the number of seniors that are eligible for it. That's gonna help seniors with rising costs be able to stay in their homes. And finally, for those who are dealing with pain at the pump, 
I want to give them all an immediate $250 gas tax mm -hmm. rebate. Mm -hmm. If you have two cars, 500 bucks, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Bottom line here is yeah. we have to cut costs for Pennsylvania families. Yeah. This problem may not have come from Pennsylvania, but I think we need to address it here. And I'm the only candidate that's put forth a plan to do just that. But since we're on this poll, okay, and let's take a look at what's happening here. You, the economy, number one, right? And it's always, as James Carville said, the economy stupid. We get that. But surprising, so Democrats are running on abortion. It is number two, but it is a far number two. 51% economy, 15% for abortion. And crime, if you look at the Republican message, it's 3%. It's at the bottom of the list. What is a disconnect here for Democrats on abortion and Republicans on crime? Look, I can't speak for national Democrats or national Republicans. I can speak to what I hear in Pennsylvania every day. And I would just tell you, I think Pennsylvania voters, Republican and Democrat, they know how to walk and chew gum at the same time, Don. They can care about rising costs. They can also care about their personal freedoms. And those personal freedoms are under attack with this dangerous extreme opponent that I'm running against who wants to ban and criminalize all abortion with no exceptions. So I lean in on protecting personal freedoms and also talking about the economy and crime. I'm proud to be endorsed by prosecutors of both mm -hmm. parties, by local police all across Pennsylvania. I've got a plan to hire 2,000 more police officers across this commonwealth, properly trained and from the communities that they are uh, sworn to protect because people have a right to both be safe and feel safe in our communities. I think we do all of that together. Mm -hmm. And that's why we've seen so many Republicans join with Democrats and independents in supporting our campaign. There is uh, so little common ground, but I'm sort of fascinated by the fact that you and your competitor, Doug Mastriano, actually agree on a lot when it comes to the economy. Um, you agree you both want to cut taxes. You actually want to cut corporate taxes more, almost twice as much as he does. You want to cut the corporate tax rate 4% by 2025. He wants to cut it 2.5% by 2030. You're campaigning on that bus president with President Biden who has talked in the last week about uh, corporate war profiteering. Uh, he said, let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. I know Pennsylvania has the second highest corporate tax rate in the country, but you and the president seem on sort of a different page. Are you? Well, look, I I'm not paying a whole lot of attention to what the president's plan is or what people in mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. are paying attention to or talking about. I'm focused on what Washington County, Pennsylvania needs. And what they need right now is more money in their pocket. If we're going to spur economic growth here, then we need to cut taxes and raise wages. That goes hand in hand. I think that's a common sense approach that's going to help our economy. And that's what I'm focused on, the people of Washington County, not the noise coming out of Washington, D.C. And I know President Biden is coming to campaign with you on Saturday. We see you have been on this bus tour, I know, across. We see the bus behind you. It looks Wait, a what, chilly what there. bus tour? There's a big <laughs> giant. <laughs> it's right there. Yeah. It's right there. Y'all are welcome to join me anytime. <laughs> hey, we might come down and just do that. Uh, do the morning show from the bus. Maybe we will. Do you yeah. think you can fit all three of us on there? We had an election express here. And now, oh, remember know, we'll that? Remember the election oh, express. Can I, can I ask you about something that we are seeing from our reporters on the ground in Pennsylvania, and this is really fascinating to me. Sure. And they are hearing from voters who you are deeply popular, your, your polls aren't even really that close, who are voting for you for governor. But when it comes to the Senate, Senate they are voting for Mehmet Oz. What do you make of that? Well, look, Caitlin, we'll, we'll see what voters ultimately do at the end of the day. Um, obviously, I'm for John Fetterman, and you couldn't have a clearer contrast in both of these races, but I'm focused on 
making the case against Doug Mastriano, who's by far the most dangerous extreme candidate running in the nation. I think if you look at Pennsylvania's history, though, um, our voters are discerning. Um, we've, we've seen a long history of ticket splitting across Pennsylvania. I'm proud of the fact that so many Republicans have joined with Democrats and independents in supporting me. Look, I think they recognize this is a moment where we got to take off the red jersey and the blue jersey and just wear the Pennsylvania jersey with everything that's at stake, with our personal freedoms being threatened by the likes of Doug Mastriano, with our democracy that was born right here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania 246 years ago under attack. We need to stand tall around the values that we hold dear, democracy, freedom, and our love of this country. And that's something that's uniting Republicans, Democrats, and independents behind my candidacy, and I'm honored to have that support. You know what I, mean, I think the biggest stake, lesson here is can, in this? Go on, I'm sorry. I've just got one question about about that, because you said you are supporting John Fetterman. I thought and, Don, Don was about to drop some knowledge. I, I was about to drop okay. some knowledge, but sorry. Caitlin has go a question ahead, for you. I'll Don, drop it after Caitlin. Don is always dropping knowledge. I'm sorry. I, I do have a quick question, ahead, because Caitlin. you said that you're supporting John Fetterman, and you know you talked about what's at stake in this race. Do you believe that John Fetterman, though, to assuage voters' concerns, should have his doctors brief the press? That, that's obviously a decision John's going to make. Um, I'll actually be with him tonight in State College. We'll be rallying students at Penn State. Uh, but that's ultimately uh, his call. Yeah. Knowledge drop so time. My knowledge drop time was, and it is, look, I, I think the biggest lesson in here is Give brand. it to us, Don. It's branding. You got the bus and you got the jacket. <laughs> And you stayed on message. You're like, gonna... this, this isn't about this person. It's about me. It's not about what's happening in the nation. This is about what's happening to the people in Pennsylvania. Staying on message, but I'm just I'm making a joke about your branding. But nice jacket, by the way. <laughs> well, Don, if if Don Lemon knows how to dress, so if you like the Ted Lasso puffer coat, that's yeah. uh, that's a good it's deal like a, here, Don. Thank you. You don't even Thank know what a challenge it is Shapiro, to keep up with this. Thank, Thank you so you much for joining us from your bus tour this morning. We look forward to uh, paying attention closely to Pennsylvania. Yep. Thank you. For coming up. Oh, this is a good one. She has acted in classics, Legally Blonde, American Pie, two of my favorite movies. And Don had the chance to talk to her. Jennifer Coolidge, the one and only. We'll have her interview ahead. Fun. Oh my God, you look like the 4th of July. It makes me want a hot dog real bad. Yeah, okay. Well, you gotta get... Definitely have seen Jennifer Coolidge. Maybe you don't know her name, but you've seen her in everything. But her most acclaimed performances are probably in the current HBO, so White Lotus and Netflix, The Watcher. Everyone is watching. She is a streaming star right now. She will make you laugh. And recently, I got a chance to sit down with the actress in New Orleans at her home. Here's our interview. I'm a huge, huge fan of oh, yours. Is that okay? Can I fan out a little please? bit? Please, yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> you're an Emmy Award winner. You've been on the big screen. You've been on the small screen. And now you're the streaming star holding it down on HBO and Netflix. What is that like? It's way more enjoyable if you never expected the moment to happen. So I just, you know, I think it's the surprise of it all that makes it so fun just because... I just, I truly believe if I had expected this all to happen, it never would have happened. I think, I don't know, I don't know, who knows? And you know what, sometimes I think, I don't even want to analyze it because um, I don't want to jinx it. It's just this weird, you know, lucky moment.
What do you mean weird lucky moment? You mean to have success at, to, you know, at a ripe young age of we won't say, but... Yes, like, yes, don't say. Because Hollywood is such a, it's like youth. I mean, I think one of the reasons I think people have had such a, maybe a big response on both sort of both shows that sort of, you know, came out and stuff like that is that I think a lot of people, you know, even especially, I think COVID has something to do with it. It's like, I think a lot of people uh, want to feel like they have a chance at something that maybe they thought it was a missed chance. And I think I'm a good example of that. And I am deeply, deeply insecure. I know a lot of rich, white, f***ed up people. So let's have fun, okay? When you think about, um, about White Lotus, right? Because this is yeah. the success that happened during COVID and everybody was watching. I watched it actually, binge watched it when I had COVID. You did. And so I was watching it as I had COVID and I was like, I want to be in Hawaii with them. And then but I said, these are such awful people. I don't know, but I'd still like to be in that beautiful place. <laughs> yeah, we were. So, we, yeah, a lot of us were awful. I mean, not some of us not intentionally awful, but so, yeah, we're just spoiled, spoiled rotten. Why do you think it was such a success? Is you think it was because of COVID or obviously it's because it's a great series? I think Mike White has this, you know, is very tapped into who people are and how to tell a story. I think he's, his stuff is very real. And then we had a lot of, you know, strong feelings for Murray Bartlett's character, this, you know, sympathize being, you know, in, and, you know, look, I was a cocktail waitress right up until my 30, in my, right before I got Stifler's mom. Are you trying to seduce me? Yes, ma'am, I am. And, and the big screen, at least when I came to know you as a sex symbol, as Stifler's mom, like people were like, they were like, Stifler's mom I mean, is they, hot. I'm just really glad the Weiss brothers didn't cast a supermodel for that role because I think they wanted a woman who might be in the neighborhood and not look, you know what I mean? Like not a super, I'm really glad that they went with someone kind of normal. Yourself? If I am, you know, if I can pull that off. Like I, I thought it was like a normal woman that like, you know, just some kid would maybe have a crush on. Let's go to the watcher now. Yeah. The other, your other success that's also airing at the same time. Excuse me. Did indentured servants build this home, do you know? What? I mean, how would I know? It's scary. Yeah. It's creepy. I think people love it when it's a true story, and it really did happen to some people. Creepy people are always more interesting than monsters. You know what I mean? Like, if it's any sort of robot or anything, it's nothing is creepier than a creepy human. I think the folks in streaming now, have more of an influence on the culture and are even in some ways bigger stars than people on the screen, on the big screen, in yeah. the box office, I should say, that go to movie theaters. I feel like maybe the people that are watching, you know, streaming these shows and stuff like this, aren't as in love with perfection as the previous audience. I make a, you know, a million wrong moves in a day and I think maybe the streaming people like that. I think you're right about that. You do? I think that's part of the success because it's more relatable. No one's ever said I'm right about anything. You're... <laughs> <laughs> She's amazing. Thanks for turning me. And Kayla said, can you get Jennifer Coolidge? And I did. I felt challenged to go and interview her. We wanted to have her here on the set, but um, she can only shoot it down. That there. show is so good. Yeah. Mike White, Dave Burnett, behind it, yeah. they're amazing. And what, The Watcher as well. What's Both. your mission in life for me, Kayla? Is to get Poppy to watch White Lotus because it is that good. And that interview you, was so good. Hearing her talk about her career and how it got started. And she was grateful they didn't cast some supermodel. And she looks amazing she was, there. Yeah. Just, 
Did you watch the first episode of White Lotus? I haven't watched the first episode of, of season, season two because it was on Sunday right before we were getting ready for this show. I watched it last night, by the way. Good? Yeah, it's really, really, okay. really good. All right, together. my Saturday night. Yeah. Plans. The thing is, so funny. streaming stars now have just as big an influence or as much impact or more than box office movie stars because everyone is watching streaming and everyone is watching The White Lotus, HBO Max. And if you don't have it, make sure you sign up. And also The Watcher is on Netflix. You can catch that as well. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We'll see you back here tomorrow morning. Newsroom starts right now. Day two of the book. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.